Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined, as always, by my big fat cat, Ichabod. He's sitting on my lap. He's purring. You may hear him in the the mic. Actually, you know what? There we go. Everybody heard Icky. Uh, so while I'm normally joined by, uh, by my big fat cat, uh, Ichabod, I am in tandem joined by my good friend, my business partner, my dear mate, the one and only Jason Three Names. Hi, Jason. <laughs> Hello. Hello. When you led out with big fat, I was like, whoa, wait a second. I've had a good lockdown. What's this all about? And then you said, Icky the Cat. Yeah. I felt much, much better. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I'll, I do need to tell you this. Early on in lockdown, you saw an opportunity to maybe hop on. What do you do? Do you do a tread? Is it a treadmill you do or is it the oscilloscope? Elliptical. Elliptical. I want to say oscilloscope, but that's a different thing. The elliptical. Right. I think oscilloscopes take you to space. That's how you get to Uranus. And then, and and so you were... Just four episodes in a row with a Uranus joke? I just feel like <laughs> so you're right like pain in the Uranus. <laughs> so you're on the elliptical and you lost, you know, you, you, you trimmed down. You're never big. You, you just got, a, you know, a bit softer in the middle. Uh, but, it, you know, the, the rest of you was, was still tall, skinny, lanky Jason. Um, but it was noticeable. And But I remember meeting you there was that time we took that trip and we had to meet midway because you had a number of bottles for me i had a number of bottles for you and we stopped at some vegan place somewhere in the middle and i remember looking at your (laughs) i remember following you into the restaurant and looking at Looking at your butt, oh, butt. I was looking at your I butt. You say, follow me into the restroom. Yeah, follow <laughs> me into the restaurant. Uh, looking at my butt. Okay, this is. I feel objectified. Carry on. And and I said, he's trimmed down. He's <laughs> lost a little bit. And and that was that was in early January. I want to say sometime in early January. I literally have no idea yeah. which month we did that in. But but when I came back, that's when I started running. Because I, I saw that you had lost weight. So you, sir, were in part an inspiration to me for hopping on the treadmill and losing a bit of weight myself. So thank you. Oh, I, yeah, you're very welcome. I'm glad I could inspire somebody in this world. <laughs> um, but to, even to be honest with you, the elliptical was, was one part of it. But see the not drinking pints while traveling mm. and not eating restaurant food for two, sometimes three meals a day, mm-hmm. that was huge. That was a huge difference. And then the, the elliptical was was the cherry on top, as they say. Ah, so, so you think you would have lost weight just by eliminating your pints and eliminating your... Oh, for sure. See, I tried that and, and it didn't work. I just gained weight. And and so I needed I needed to run. I needed to get you my gained metab- weight getting off pints and restaurant food. Yes. Wow. Yes. I got to the biggest I had ever been in my <laughs> life, ever. Anyway, you weren't drinking pints in your house. No, no, I, I okay. pretty much eliminated it. All right. Okay. The one that conversation I won't name names. They will know who they are. 
But in the last week, we've we've spoken to to dear friends in Scotland who have reported the mixing the beer with the whiskey is hitting them a little harder mm. uh, as they're out of their 20s and in some cases into 30s and some cases into 40s. And I, I am right there, absolutely right there. Uh, of a day, of an evening, hanging out with friends on Zoom, I have to make a choice. Is this a beer night or is this a whiskey night? Mm. And Spoiler alert, it's always a whiskey night. <laughs> because the, the beer is just, it's just too bulky for me yeah. Yeah. Uh, now as well. So, you know, last last week we had a, a wee Zoom meeting with a mutual friend and, and you and I stuck to the drams. Mm-hmm. But drinking with this friend, I always want to throw in the pints. Mm-hmm. Always, always, always. 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 Yeah. And I fought the urge, fought the urge, fought the urge. And the next morning, tickety-boo. Easy peasy. Had not a care in the world as I went to my kids' soccer game at 10 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> You've said that about the pints, where you were getting the heartburn from them, but then also the bulk, right? Yeah. How do you find if, do you ever do a beer and whiskey night in no, tandem? Never, never, ever. I only do, you know, a half and half something like that beer and whiskey when I'm traveling with you and going to Scotland. I, I don't even think when we, when we travel, if we're having a dinner or something like that, I may do a pint during dinner and maybe we do whiskeys when we get back to the hotel or maybe if there's a decent list, we'll do whiskey afterwards. But they're never in tandem. They're never side by side. But sometimes that's because you exercise better judgment. I remember back to us in Kentucky, and we'd said this on the podcast at the time, after drinking drams with friends, I wanted to stop in at a pub for another pint you know, before we got back to the hotel. And partly you were saying, nope, that's a bad idea. And then partly it was closed. And so it didn't get to be an idea at all. <laughs> but that's absolutely my weak spot. I put enough drams in me, um. I'm ready for pints. Yeah, well, to go along with it. Who was it? There was someone. I want to say he may he may have been a Dutchman uh, who called you the most dangerous man in all of Glasgow. Macduff is, of course, the online name uh, for Stephen Browner. Yeah, yeah, the the Dane. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And so. Yeah, and what's funny is he did all that damage to himself in Glasgow. I was just no, right. no, 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 no. I was just I, supportive. I don't believe any of that. You cajole. <laughs> you definitely cajole. Uh, I prefer the word. <laughs> I don't like the word cajole. I like force I upon. See, we're getting worse. Getting worse. Getting colder. I think what you did, Jason, is you inspired him. I think that's okay. I think you're inspirational. That I would live with. That I would live with. I don't know yes. if you're inspirational or aspirational. I think it may have been a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was surprised when he said that about me. I, I thought we we're just having I was a lovely not night. Surprised and then... at all? I was. N- I've had so many Glasgow nights with you, with me and Murray holding you up. <laughs> Making sure you can get to hotels, you're not sleeping in bathtubs, you know, the whole the whole thing. Uh, I don't think I've ever slept in a bathtub. Not to your knowledge. I've thrown up in a few. Someone's at my front door. Right. Let me go see what's happening. Yep, you do. 
I'm not sure what we're expecting today. Well, it's UPS. Moving right along. I don't think I've ever slept in a in a bathtub. I feel like I might have thrown up in a few though. Why not both? Jason? Back in the day, not yeah. not now. Gosh. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. Not as a professional man in his forties. Come on, <laughs> come on. It's not be ridiculous here. Uh, okay, let let's let's put exercise and weight loss and you being a terrible influence on people all to the side. Um. <laughs> Today we've got both Jason Parker, who we've had on the podcast before. He was actually season two, episode 19. Believe it or not, that was November 2018. It's almost... Yeah, we mentioned that in today's interview, and it's just insane how the time has passed and, and what has happened in that time as well. Mm. And we also had uh, Jeff Kenoff on the podcast before, but he wasn't featured. He was one of a few people that we spoke to at a, a Whiskey Jubilee Seattle sort of wrap-up episode. I do recall. Right? Yeah. So, But now we get to talk with both of them this episode. It's so nice having Jason back and talking more in depth with Jeff. What, what were your takeaways overall with this conversation? Well, on one hand, I always like talking with ownership, right? Where you get the the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. of what's going on economically within mm-hmm. a distillery. Mm-hmm. That, that's always of interest. Mm. But then to be talking to both about how the releases come together and talking flavors and talking about taking this cask over here and will it go with that cask over there? Or, you know, will that cask tell a story... As a single, will that cask tell a story as part of an ensemble? Mm, like that, that yeah. those types of flavor conversations. You know, I would hate for us ever to get to a place where it's one type of conversation or another. You know, on one hand, the economics are hugely important, and I love hearing more about them. But we're in whiskey to drink it, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so covering those bases is always fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about, you know, is this cask for a single cask? Is this cask for, (laughs) as part of a marriage? I remember, you know, staying within the whole Seattle crew here, right? I remember going to Westland and we had brought, what was it, 22 or 25 single cask nation members there to select a cask. Mm -hmm. And, and in part of our conversation, we talked about how we tasted a myriad of casks, but these three really ticked the boxes for us. And I followed that up with saying, it's not as if the others didn't tick a box for us, <laughs> but it was obvious that they were presenting very focused notes that would do a wonderful job being part of a marriage of a multitude of casks. And I just remember mm-hmm. Matt Hoffman sort of pulling me to the side and saying, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, most people will say if that single cask isn't good, then you, A, you don't want to bottle it as a single cask, and B, why are you going to marry it with something else? Because it, it won't make for a good whiskey. But that's the number one, re- maybe not the number one reason, but that is such a great reason to marry that cask of whiskey with something else because of what it will add to that that greater experience at the end. 
Well, and I think it speaks to what we just covered with Amanda Beck with the Virginia Distillery Company in the last episode mm. of One Nation Under Whiskey, where you're talking about building flavors, yeah. layering flavors, yeah. Yeah. right? And what speaks in what way? You know, after that episode went live, I texted her and I, and I said, it still surprises me <laughs> that 25% of your stock is maturing in STR casks. <laughs> and she said, yeah, yeah it's, it's wonderful to have that component at our fingertips as we're bringing together mm. multiple casks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that, yeah. Right? And that's certainly part of what we're discussing today with, with Jeff and Jason. Uh, the, the other thing I'll say is we talked a little bit about single malt as a category mm-hmm. and and kind of where that's going in America and how that decision might be made and the way the recordings all worked out <laughs> I had I had interviewed Amanda the the Friday before the weekend and then you and I jumped on this call with Jason and Jeff at Copperworks mm-hmm. after that weekend. I think it was like a Tuesday or something like that. Mm. And some of the things that I discussed about single mall as a category, as regional with Amanda came up again in the conversation with Jason and Jeff. Yeah. And so if you've, if you've got the last episode of One Nation Under Whiskey Fresh in your mind, this one in some places is really going to jump off, springboard off uh, some of those conversations, some of that question and answer that that we had with Amanda. That, that is a really good invite to those that may have missed that previous episode, right? This is a good point about American single malt. And, and we mentioned Westland, right? This is three American single malt producers that, we, that we're discussing. And in all of these discussions, at some point in time, we're talking about this creation slash evolution of single malt as a very specific category within American Mm -hmm. spirits and how we'll really benefit they as producers and we as consumers if if this category has a a a good definition right now it's it's the wild west we need to tighten it up a little bit however within those confines give producers the ability to branch out so they're not stifled by too many rules as well right i think and that's that's definitely part of the right, conversation here. right like if you look at american single malt as the definition stands right now a stifling point is that it has to be matured in new charred american oak if you list out on the label single malt American whiskey Hmm. on one line. But if you take a look at at all of these producers, whether it's Westland or Virginia or or whomever, American whiskey will have its own separate line and single malt will have its own separate line. And that's how you can get out of having to use that new charred oak cask which then I think just kind of gets you back into the wheelhouse of bourbon and rye, which is so defined by that cask. Giving these producers the ability to use a multitude of casks, just like the rest of the world is doing, will, you know, while A, we want to, we want to tighten up 
what is and what is not American single malt, allowing them to use a multitude of casts will give them that freedom that Scotch whiskey producers use and, and other malt producers use to create a multitude of flavors by use of cask. Well, I think one of the other interesting aspects is whether or not one must mash on site. Mm. And as we're going to talk with Copperworks today, they're not mashing on site. They're bringing in the mash. Yeah. What does that mean? How does that look? Good Where point. does that go? And, yep. and I think Jason and Jeff speak eloquently to, to that point as well. So there's, there's a ton covered in this chat, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. You looked like you thoroughly enjoyed it. I did indeed, yep. And so I think we should give our dear listeners a chance to see if they thoroughly enjoy it. All right, off to the conversation. So here we are with Jeff and Jason from Copperworks, a wonderful distillery in the Pacific Northwest, just right in Seattle. And I was having a conversation with my wife over lunch. That the last time I visited, you still had a two-lane overpass in front of your building that came between you and Pier 29. Are you as far down as 29? No, 56. 56. 56 across Alaskan way. That's right. And 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 that's now gone. How how is life oh. without a two-lane overpass in front of your windows? Clean, quiet, <laughs> and full of mud because they're still putting in the roadway and then they're putting in the park. So 2024 or let's just read that as 2025 is when it should be really done. The new oh uh, the seawall got built about five years ago. The viaduct got taken down two years ago. The park is going in. The zoo, is, I mean, the aquarium is building a new uh, shark tank on our side of the street. And the, uh -huh. uh, the, the, the ferry terminal is being rebuilt. So that's all supposed to be done in 2025. And they're thinking they're going to have about 21 million tourists a year on the waterfront. Oh my. Three times what they have now. Goodness. Goodness. Wow. And, and, and that was actually a question I was going to ask. Obviously, here we are, summer 2021. We've all been dealing with the pandemic for a long, long time. In talking to distillers, both here and overseas and around the world, that loss of foot traffic is incredibly significant and in mm -hmm. talking to distillers part of the business plan is foot traffic people coming into your tasting room people walking out with bottles in their hands and so we unfortunately haven't had too much of a chance to talk during the pandemic how has that looked for you what have you lost and and if possible is there anything you've gained <laughs> Jason's already <laughs> laughing at that question. Well, well, we, well, the first thing we lost is we lost Jeff. He lives in Tacoma and he has a not quite two-year-old daughter. And in order to keep her safe, he has pretty much needed to work from home entirely for this past yeah. year and a half. So I have seen Jeff now three or four times in a real person uh, in the past couple of months. 
but wow, uh, we I'm still we, real. We spent a long time. Yeah, he's still real. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are you distilling by app? I mean, how, how's that? How's that working? Well, Jeff? <laughs> I, I focus more on the uh, the tasting and blending. So all I have to do is go in under the cover of darkness, pick up samples, and uh, taste them at home. So it's it's been uh, nice. Yeah, wow. yeah, we've 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 gone virtual. So we still do production. We have a, a distiller uh, has been doing production and blending and, and bottling and all that. We still do um, online sales, so we're able to ship to about thirty-seven countries uh, or states. I'm sorry, oh, um, wow. and and a few countries. But what we've been doing primarily is just uh, getting our act together for this year. We're get, we're getting ready for a very large fundraiser. Uh, looking to build a couple of restaurants and a new production facility in addition to the mm-hmm. one we have now. And so we've just really been putting all of our energy uh, lately into into that effort. Um, but we did lose almost 80% of our retail traffic. And by retail, I mean not only um, in the store, but we also lost a lot to grocery stores and liquor stores, bars and restaurants. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. the, the grocery stores and liquor stores apparently were doing well for the less expensive products, but we were mm-hmm. only up about 3% there, but down, you know, closer to 80% other places. So it was a tough Got year. Got it. Yeah. And it, to get back yeah, to your so original th- question, I mean, it, it's definitely a huge part of our business model. I mean, you know where we are, right? In the sort of tourist zone of Seattle. Yeah. And yeah. that was mm-hmm. intentional. You know, not only is it a way to get revenue because people come in and buy flights and buy bottles, but it's really most of our marketing plan. You know, we don't spend marketing dollars elsewhere because we've invested in that location. That's really our marketing dollars. So, we spent, yeah. you know, 12, 13 months without getting any return on those, you know, marketing dollars, so to speak. Oh, that's, that's so tough. So I, I'm going to ask a, a potential sensitive question and feel free to say, we're not answering that. But <laughs> we have a dollar there... for every time Joshua offers that caveat in an interview. <laughs> yeah, and no one's taking me up on that dollar. Yeah. I have a dollar... <laughs> I, say, I, I remain this as might rich as I was before. offend you, but let me press on. <laughs> was there any point in time where where you're losing all of this revenue, you're losing all of these sales, where you said, "There's there's a chance we may not make it. There's there's a chance we we may have to shut this down." Or did you have contingency plans in place to safeguard you from from that potential? Well, I, I'll, I'll start first. Um, we were fortunate in that right before the pandemic, we had been working on our first capital campaign. And the mm-hmm. day that they closed all the restaurants was the day that we launched our campaign. So we <laughs> happened to have um, raised three quarters of a million dollars right in the beginning of COVID. And that allowed wow. us to work all the way through. As a matter of fact, we produced more whiskey last year than we've ever made. But that, oh, wow. that didn't mean that we were out of trouble. So we actually lost mm-hmm. one dist- distiller. He, he left the industry. He went back to school, is uh, studying uh, to be an, uh, a computer programmer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had to lay off tasting room manager, but he had another job waiting for him. And he's coming back uh, in three days to start oh, full-time again. So, you yeah. know, things that we, we, we were lucky. Um, I'm surprised at how few places did completely close down. 
and the ones that did had already been thinking about it pre-COVID. So it wasn't oh, their, their um, COVID didn't knock them out entirely, but it gave them that impetus. But it also opened up um, some opportunities for us. We talk about it as a reshuffling of the deck. And that means that a bunch of people who were on top are now no longer on top and offering us opportunities to come into that market or come into that bar or restaurant or even come mm-hmm. in and open a bar and restaurant where there previously had been one. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm both sad uh, that we were so close to um, breaking through into some really good profitability numbers, but also happy that we're, we survived it and have a whole bunch of options coming up. Yeah. And so, and, and, and so with that in mind, as, as the country's opening up again, are you able to, to bring people in? Are you getting that, that foot traffic? Is it, do you have to limit it? How are you, how are you adapting with the opening of Washington State? Jeff, you take this. Yeah, so we, we are open now, and we're currently open five days a week with limited capacity. Essentially, we have fewer tables in-house than normal, and we're sort of saying in order to taste, you need to be seated at one of these tables. Um, in, mm-hmm. in August, August 1st, we'll open up seven days a week. We don't technically have to have limited capacity anymore, but we're kind of making that choice because we feel like, um, A, there's still some potential for this thing to, to come back in a pretty bad way. In fact, we're seeing that in the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, we feel like you know with our limited staff and some of our new team, um, we're just giving a better experience by limiting the capacity a bit. And that's always been on top of mind for us. You know, we don't just want to have a tourist location. We really want to give a good educational experience about spirits in general and about Copperworks. Um, so having that slightly limited capacity during this time is allowing us to really, you know, give that experience to everybody that comes in. Um, but we are seeing a lot of people on the waterfront. So people are back out there and ready to um, go to restaurants and come taste and, and enjoy, you know, some sense of a normal life again. You know, it was funny because we used to just pack them in. Tourists would come in and we'd just make room for them to stand. And, and the place would have, you know, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder people in there. None of them having the experience that we wanted to offer them because they were hmm. they were too packed in. And yeah. we with COVID, we were forced to take more of a restaurant approach. And I don't think we're ever going to go back. We, we feel better about asking people to wait until there's a mm-hmm. table and then offering them a great experience instead of being, Oh sure. Come on in, yeah. just stand around like, you know, cordwood and we'll stack you up and, and pour whiskey on you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so you guys have been a lot better. You guys have been in our space. It's not huge. The tasting room space. Yeah. So it's not as if we can just say, okay, let's have more staff. Uh, that doesn't solve mm-hmm. everything because it still becomes this thing where our, our staff can't even get to people because there's so many people in, in the way. Um, so limiting it a bit is really helpful for everyone, I think. Well, and that's such an interesting statement that you make there, Jason, where we've gotten better at having people wait. Whereas I, I can imagine if someone's at your door, you don't want to lose a prospective sale or you know somebody right. learning about Copperworks for the first time. But mm. also, I think if they really do want to learn about it, they will wait. And if somebody doesn't want to wait... Maybe they weren't going to be a, a regular customer of Copperworks anyway. I'll put it this way, Jason. If we had a bad review on Yelp or TripAdvisor and the bad review was 
so crowded, couldn't get in. I would be okay <laughs> yeah. with that versus got in, I was ignored, nobody talked to me, you yeah. know, and I didn't learn a thing. That would be a bad review. So we're yeah. opting for the the better of the bad reviews. <laughs> no, I like that. I like that a lot. I, I also want to circle back to something you'd said earlier as well. And every time I speak with you, Jason, you've, you've got such a sense of of the industry and this is my version of the Joshua a moment ago. I know not everybody likes the word craft industry and craft distilling, and I know one day we'll come up with a better one, but it's the one we're using for the moment. There was a sense in what you were saying a moment ago that in the pandemic, the consumer moved to, let's call them more affordable, maybe more well-known brands, maybe more easily accessible brands. What do you think that says about the industry that you occupy, this this American single malt producer world? How's that looking? And and is it is it something with which we spoil ourselves in, in good times and then we forget about in bad? Or is there more to it than that? But what are you seeing? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's a great question. And of course, nobody has the crystal ball. But here's my perspective <laughs> is that, you know, it's um, it was interesting when the pandemic was first announced and we had to shut down. We were all told it'd be two weeks and then we were told it'd be three weeks. And then it's, you know, it's probably going to be a month. OK, gosh, two months. No, three months. <laughs> no, six months. No, a year. Who knows? And uh-huh. all of that at first led to. Um, well, if I'm going to spend three weeks, I'm just going to go out and get my favorite booze and I'm going to kick back and enjoy a a short vacation. Later, Mm -hmm. it became, oh, my gosh, I may never get a job again. Uh, I better, uh, you know, anesthetize myself with the cheapest product I can get. So pantry stocking, you know, and uh, everything uh, filled up there. But I don't think that we um, saw a return to expendable income being spent on on high volume items like ours, discretionary income like like Copperworks requires, until it felt like people were coming back out of uh, of, uh, the the pandemic and able to go out and see each other again. And suddenly people are remembering, you know what, I haven't bought anything in a year and a half. I actually have a lot of cash to spend. And I should treat mm-hmm. myself to this. And then, by the way, I'm going to help a small business. So it's almost been over the top the amount of, um, of sales that we're able to make from a visitor compared oh, to wow. previously when they were just kicking the tires, but they didn't feel bad about not buying anything. Now they're like, oh, my gosh, I need to buy something. I want to buy something. I'm here to buy something. And so it's been oh, very, wonderful. very, very good. Now, how long that'll last, I think we'll get back to a normal state at some point when people are mm. willing to, to um, you know, spend their discretionary income more conservatively. But right now, it just seems to be burning a hole in everybody's pocket, which we're happy <laughs> about. <laughs> I think it goes back to that whole idea of experience, too, right? You can have an experience at our tasting room, but drinking a craft spirit is more than just the liquid inside, right? It's a whole story. It's a whole experience. Maybe it's a memory of visiting somewhere. You know, maybe Mm. it's setting Mm -hmm. up a tasting with your friends. So when you're in that pandemic mode, you're not thinking about any of those things. You're just thinking about, Mm. you know, what, what can I drink and what's going to make me feel good for a short period of time. 
Whereas when you're back in regular life mode, you're thinking, okay, let's do these tastings with friends and let's remember my trip yeah. to Seattle or wherever else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or preserve the grain shed in Washington state or do salmon safe, you know, purchases. I mean, things that we are now able to afford to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just really quickly, uh, Jason, I think you may have mentioned it. Um, you said during the pandemic, you were able to ship out to 37 different states. Right. Initially, it was countries. Then you changed it to states. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, but, I but meant to say also, worlds. <laughs> Global domination. 37 Universal different worlds. Just, we're on the rocket with Bezos. Can... You know, we're heading to space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you and Bezos. Tight, yeah. tight. <laughs> Was your ability to ship to these 37 states something that existed prior to COVID? Or was it something that the governor may have put into place in response to that to keep um, Washington's distilleries uh, afloat? No, we're fortunate. Washington has, for uh, about five years now, had that ability uh, to ship. Okay. Um, so, so we, we not every state, <clears throat> excuse me, not every state has that ability or that privilege, and we feel very lucky. And it is one of the things that's kept a lot of the distilleries in Washington going during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, it also is increasingly more and more states. You know, I mentioned my home state of Kentucky is uh, uh, a. a where I come from, but unfortunately until last year, we weren't able to ship to Kentucky. So my parents uh, couldn't get bottles there because we don't distribute there. You know, it is sort of bringing coals to Newcastle, I understand, (laughs) but now we're able to ship directly to dad. So they made that leap. Okay. Okay. And everybody should uh, support the bill that would allow the post office to ship spirits that, that yes um, absolutely yes. in the news right yes, now yes, so yes. Um, write your representatives and tell them you like that idea Gosh, that would be magnificent is, is there a deadline to that decision that you're aware of um there probably is a deadline but it's not at the top of my head at this moment but right right now is a good time to reach out to representatives okay so so people need to act as if the decision is being made tomorrow so you need to make the <laughs> yeah the, Make your voice known today. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the the Um, post office may not make it till tomorrow if we don't act, so, yeah. Yep, yep, act today. Um, Jeff, swinging over to you here, um, you were mentioning in in passing that, yes, you're in Tacoma, but you're in charge of, of tasting and blending. This is our first chance to really, you know, stretch our legs in conversation with you. Can you... Tell us a little bit about yourself and and really what your role entails, what that looks like. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, getting to that first question, my role entails a a little bit of everything, right? So sort of a small team we've got um, right now, there's four of us about to be five and then a few part-time folks. So when it comes to keeping the wheels on of the distillery, it's sort of whatever it takes, right? Whether it's cleaning the bathroom or getting the tasting room set up or blending the next whiskey release. Um, but you know, when I have the time that I wish I have, um, I focus mostly on our sales efforts pretty much worldwide or mm-hmm. full galaxy, I guess. And coming back to our <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <it>. conversation, <laughs> universal. Um, and, and as of late, you know, the last couple of years I've been kind of leading our tasting panel, which, 
is where we taste all our different casks of whiskey that are aging. I mean, it's also where mm-hmm. we throw in other products from other producers and, and get to know them so we can have, you know, the whole perspective on everything that's out there in the world. Um, and, you know, I do that in tandem with Jason, but I, I tend to um, be, I think, better at kind of scheduling and getting the casks pulled and stuff like that because he's just pulled in so many different directions. Um, and then same thing with the blending. I mean, I tend to be kind of the first one to put together our new releases and then um, we go to our whole team for opinions. But then it comes down to really Jason and I saying, you know, is this what we want to put out into the world? Do we want to make, you know, this modification or this modification? Um, it's a lot of fun. You know, as, as you guys know, all of our releases of whiskey are different. So each time it's really painting the new picture. So we get to, to mm-hmm. play with whatever barrels we have ready and, and think about, you know, what flavors we want to put out into the world at that moment. I kind of sometimes phrase it as the way a chef does like a seasonal menu, right? They think about what do I have yeah. available right now and, and how am I going to put it on this uh, plate? And we do the same thing in the bottle. Yeah. With with that said, is it is it worth pouring one of your wares right now? Oh, you were kind enough to send us... <laughs> Some new releases for this. Yeah. We're all meeting over Zoom right now. Um, sh- I've got we- 38. Let's start with 38. Yeah. I think that is the good place okay. to start. Non-heated. Exactly. So, Re- really quickly, while while we while we pour this and maybe let them breathe for a little bit, you know, we're we're having this conversation. We're we're learning a bit about what what you both do. We learned a bit about how copper works. Um, worked through COVID and the removal of highways and, and all this stuff. <laughs> but I, but I realize I realized two things. I realized that there's there's likely a fair number of listeners to which Copperworks is a new name for them. And so and so maybe during this tasting process, I, w- I wonder if you could talk about what people should expect for Copperworks and what what you're trying to put out there as a single malt producer how do you put forth your products based on what has inspired you and just very quickly to give a plug for season two episode 19 i spent multiple hours at the distillery with jason parker we did a real nice deep dive on all things copperworks that would have been around about summer end of summer 2018 that we hung out that day. So please also for listeners hearing about Copperworks for the first time, go back into that episode. But I'm on board with everything you've requested here, Joshua. Gentlemen, the floor once well, again is yours. Here will be something really fun to determine is if our answers now uh, have any relationship to the answers we gave two years ago. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> but I, I, I'll start first because I think it's uh, um, it comes a little bit from Micah and my backgrounds. In that, um, so Micah's the Micah Nutt is the co-founder of Copperworks. He and I had been homebrewers together for uh, a dozen or so years, maybe even twenty years before we opened the distillery. And I'd been a professional brewer since 1989. So our value to the industry we felt was in fermentation and the use of malt. We felt like we were brewers who had uh, a knowledge of the the first steps, which was making. A wash. The difference is we wanted to make a very high quality beer as opposed to a sort of traditional wash. And so the way we were going to do that is uh, using all of our brewing techniques, brewer's yeast, 
brewers' uh, sensitivity to bacteria and wild yeast, you know, so sanitation. And then even brewery fermentation profiles and conditionings prior to entering into the still. So everything was predicated on making a high-quality beer. Now, I use the word Mm. beer because it is brewed at a brewery just like a beer, but there is one exception. There are no hops. So it's not technically a beer. But it's important Mm. to think about it as a beer in all other aspects instead of traditional wash. That's kind of our... Our, our baseline so much so that we put on the label from great brewing comes great, great spirits. And that tells the story about nice. what we start. Nice. Yeah. After that, yeah. you know, it's all um, a much more, um, much more traditional distillation and the barrel aging program is much more experimental than it might be in a traditional distillery, but focused right now on first uh, virgin oak. So first fill in our case, meaning virgin oak, um, really high quality aged staves and long toast and lighter chars. And then uh, we're refilling those casks. And so, Jason, this is something that we hadn't a chance to talk about last time. We're now super excited about the quality of product that are going to be coming from what we call our second fill. So mm. you know, the, the second time we've put whiskey <laughs> in our casks. Yeah. Yep. And what's delightful about that is it's not over-oaked in only four years, we're able to give it more time for oxidation, esterification, mm. and maturation. So I think we're going to come up with some really cool flavors, um, which will give us almost two categories of whiskey, new oak whiskey and first fill whiskey. We can release those separately or blend them together and even have new uh, flavors. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Very nice. For sure. Yep. Cool. Thank you for that. Yeah, and Jason and Micah's beer background has really led us down this rabbit hole of focusing on the malt. You know, the bigger distilleries often will treat malted barley as a commodity product. Um, For us, we're Mm -hmm. treating it more the way uh, grapes are treated in in wine. So we're thinking about what variety it is, um, what farm it's grown on, even what year it's grown in. Um, So it's, it's really this deep dive into the barley itself and seeing how that influences flavor um, and not only how it influences flavor, but sort of what are the varieties that we can grow best in Washington? So, you know, since we opened, you know, we were very focused on beer and then producing a great whiskey. And now we've kind of shifted to add an, a part that's focused on making a great Washington whiskey. I think if you asked us on mm. day one, is is your ethos about Washington? We, we might have said, well, yeah, we're in Washington. Um, but now it's, you know, with the barleys we're using and some of the local peated product, which we'll talk about later. Um, it's mm-hmm. become a, a bigger focus going forward. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have uh, release number 38 in our glass, which is f- uh, 50% alcohol. That's right. Yes. And, we, we uh, almost always bottle in triple digits, not because we're trying to show off, but because we think that's where it tastes the, the, the best with the longest finish. And we, we try to make it so that it's not burning, but that it's the maximum flavor. And for us, that tends to be around 100 to 106 proof. So 50 to 53. Gotcha. I, I tell you, just nosing this, um, uh, the this, this scents are coming at me fast and furiously. Uh, n- not to be confused with Vin, Vin Diesel uh, or, or any of those uh, fantastic... <laughs> 
uh, movies. Um, but but you know when when I first nosed it, I was getting this coffee note and then a bit of chicory or, or like a, a, a birch bark going on, and then it went to caramel, and then I got a little bit of like even even grape juice, like a Concord grape juice sweetness, and then that went away. And then came back some of that some of that caramel, and now I'm getting some brown spices in there as well, like baking spices. And so this is really is really running the gamut and is offering up different scents than I'm familiar with, not just from a single malt perspective, but but more specifically from an American single malt perspective. And so I wonder if you can you can talk about where some of these notes are coming from. I haven't sipped it yet, but 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 Jeff, it'd be it'd be great to hear from you. Yes. Yeah, so on I here. think it's it's great that you're picking up all kinds of layers of, of aromas right off the bat, and I think that really goes from comes from you know the different elements that go into this. So this is kind of based off of a varietal of barley called Baroness, which is grown out in eastern Washington. Um, by a single farm, he's the only guy that that grows that variety uh, in the world. So it's a pretty pretty rare variety of barley. Um, that's gonna give, in our experience, a little more of sort of grassy hay, you know, more grain focused notes to this release. And then we have a couple of just pale malt uh, barley. So I mean, of course, the Baroness is pale malt as well. Um, but when I use pale malt generically, it's it's more of just the typical commodity malt that you know a brewer would use so we, yeah. we used a lot yeah. of that in our past so we still have some really nice barrels it still makes great whiskey um that's going to bring forward some of you know what we used to call classic copper works when we first started some more of the the typical kind of malt profile that you would get and then you're going to get a lot more of the regular american whiskey flavors from the barrel from those barrels you know vanilla caramel baking spices um and then the uh big contributor to some of these really interesting flavors is this has 5% manzanilla sherry cask whiskey um, used in this uh, bottle. So it's a small amount. It's it's quite enough to be detectable, but it's not so much that you say, oh, this is a, a sherry bomb or a sherry finish or you know a sherry whiskey. Um, it's just they're kind of balancing out some of those classic whiskey flavors, some of those more you know grain, grass, hay focused flavors. And then you get some mm-hmm. of the sort of dried fruit, dark fruit, maple, um, things that yeah. you get from from that sherry element. I, I'm so happy to hear you mention manzanilla because I've, <laughs> I got such a big uh, gingerbread component mm. on the nose. Yes. Yes, yes, and yes. I was asking myself, is that coming from new charred oak? And as soon as you mention manzanilla, <clears throat> like I think that just delivers it so nicely. But then only 5% of the overall makeup. I like what you're talking about as a complementary note that goes with the grain, goes with the other barrels. So this is really delicious. Yeah, and as, as you know, it's quite you know common in the scotch industry to do finishing in sherry. Um, we've found that it's really nice to be able to do a primary maturation in a sherry cask and then be able to use it as we choose. So when we're doing our blending in our taste panels we can try it at two percent five percent eight percent twenty percent and see what the difference is we have so much more control than if we just stick it in a sherry barrel and then all we have to do is you know figure out the time whereas when we're blending it we can say whoops that was too much let's try a different blend and (laughs) and bottle it like this instead whereas if you go too much on the finishing 
your host, right? You're like, oh, I wish we would have done that. You know, of course you can blend in other things, um, but we, we find it more powerful to be able to just, you know, do that right away. Well, it's almost like when you put too much salt into your soup and now you're like, oh, get a potato, stick a potato <laughs> yeah, in there. Oh, it's too soup. salty, get another potato. <laughs> <laughs> Cut up more carrots. <laughs> Suddenly exactly. you've made soup for an army instead of a family. Yeah. Yeah, the neat thing about this um, about this process that we're doing, and Jeff mentioned the fact that we do a taste panel. You know, if you were a... Uh, a large distillery making a single product consistently around the world year after year, it'd be better to have a single person with that one memory and that one ability to always go back to their focal point of aroma. But that's not what we're doing, is it? This is our 38th whiskey that we've released, and it's different Mm -hmm. than anything we've made before. So better for us, we think, to have a lot of voices in that conversation and we generally never release something that the majority of us aren't behind. There's always somebody who might go, well, this isn't my favorite, but, you know, I can live with it. But the rest of us are going, oh, my God, this is so good. <laughs> and so, you know, maybe that person represents 10 or 15 percent of the public out there, but 85 or 90 percent, we think, is represented. But what we don't do is release a whiskey that we all say, nah, it's not really ready yet. But, you know, we have to release a whiskey now. You know, people are asking for it. It's like, nope, we'll just leave it in the barrel. We'll blend something else. We'll make a new concept. So what we've become better at as a result of all of us participating is better stewards of everything going into it. The process, the sanitation, the selection of malts, the way we warehouse barrels, how we handle the blends, what proofs that go in. It's been really fun getting the whole team not just Jeff and me, but everybody up to a level of, um, of blending capabilities. Yeah, and a lot of small distilleries, you know, they'll say, these are the five barrels that are ready. Let's put them together and put a whiskey out. And that's fine. You know, I mean, it, it, it could, as long as they're making solid whiskey, that's going to make a solid whiskey. Um, but that's never been our approach. We've, we've never said, okay, these are a certain age. These are ones we have to use right now. And in fact, many times we've tasted groups of barrels and said, well, let's skip these. They seem like they need another eight months, 10 months, 12 months. Let's mm-hmm. check out the next batch and see if we can find some barrels we really like in the next batch. Um, so it's always about flavor first, never about the timeline or even the type of barley. It's, it's really, you know, what, what are we smelling and what are we tasting and, and how are we going to put it into a delicious blend? So, so far I've heard about three or four components that, that we all like to hear about. The grain, the the casks, the blending of that, the bringing together the flavours, yeast. What's mm. what's going on with yeast in here? Could the two of you speak to that? Wait a minute, there's yeast involved? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we forgot that. <laughs> it's so, everywhere. So here's the funny thing. When you ask a, uh, a consumer, and frankly, even a lot of distillers. What makes the flavor of whiskey? The first thing they'll answer is the barrel. The second thing they'll answer is perhaps the grain, depending on if it was like a rye or a wheat or whatever. And then the third thing they'll answer is the water. Oh my gosh, as if that is a flavor component. But the thing that they rarely will say is it's the yeast. Well, by golly, the yeast is the source of flavors. All those other things are 
the precursors for flavor development. What makes flavors? Yeah. Yeast makes flavors. Distilling separates the good ones from the bad ones and then transforms them, and they, and they go through mm. lots of transformations in the barrel. So, so why is yeast considered a commodity, and why is malted barley considered a commodity? Because it helps you make a consistent product. But if you've relaxed sure. the need to make a consistent product, then you actually get to enjoy bizarre uh, combinations of flavors. <laughs> and yeah. what we've discovered from brewers is that brewers use yeast to make flavors. Distillers generally use yeast to make alcohol. Yield is generally the golden criteria for yeast selection in distillers and flavor is usually the golden criteria for a brewer. So we use mm -hmm. a brewer's yeast because we're primary looking at flavor. And the, the brewer's yeast, there's two types of brewer's yeast that you can use, a dried yeast or a cake yeast or fresh mm -hmm. yeast. Fresh yeast has uh, uh, all of the um, attributes of a freshly fermented beer, meaning that it doesn't have a lot of bud scars. It's ready to begin fermentation uh, within minutes, not hours or days, that it has mm -hmm. uh, uh, not suffered <clears throat> freeze drying or, or uh, dehydration, but and, 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 and is really healthy. So we try to use a fresh yeast. And I say try, I mean, except for our experiments, we always use a fresh yeast. Uh, to do our fermentation from the Elysium Brewery. And the reason we like the Elysium's Halseo yeast is that it, it ferments the right amount of sugar. It's not completely attenuative, so it leaves back a little residual sugars, which come through in mouthfeel and flavor. It uh, flocks, that is, it settles into the tank and leaves clear wash mm. behind, that we don't end up with yeast autolysis flavors in distillation. So we get rid yeah. of some of the off flavors from there. <clears throat> and it produces wonderful esters, fruit esters, floral esters, and almost no sulfites. Exactly mm. the opposite of a distiller's yeast. We ferment at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So another weird thing to do. It adds, you know, an extra three weeks to our process, but it makes what we think is a good starting base. So we're, we're willing to take that hit. I remember that from the last time you and I spoke, that adding three weeks to the process blew my mind then, and it blows my mind again today. It, it, adding it, three it, weeks to the process. Yeah. You're that's, crazy. That is we're not good at math. Absolutely insane. So what's the payoff? If, if that sounds crazy, there must be a payoff. Well, the, two things. One, the obvious payoff is that we can produce flavors that you can't produce otherwise and that we don't produce flavors that would normally have been produced. So we get this mouthfeel, this texture, and this uh, malty character that um, showcases the one thing we're trying to feature, which is the malt. The second payoff is that we have less fixing to do in barrel aging. So we're not trying to look for removal through a charcoal layer and addition of vanillas and caramels. We already have the, the mm. sweetness that we need coming out of the malt. We don't have the lactic acid bacteria sourness that we need filtered through those chars. So we sure. end up with a product that the third thing that we're looking for are the development of those, those, those compounds we've collected, conjugars, into esters. And that's why we keep our temperature in our warehouses consistently warm, 70 or between 70 and 80 Fahrenheit year round. Right. That optimizes esterification. It doesn't optimize removal and addition through the barrel, but it does optimize that oxidation esterification. So we get about three times the 
aging, or the, I should say the maturing, uh, that you would in a warehouse that gets cold half of the year. So that's, mm. that's a good value. I, I know Josh has got to follow up on the wood. If, if I can just follow up on the yeast for a second here, you, you started to answer a question that I hadn't even answer, asked you yet, which is why I, I'm always so impressed by you. Um, you started to say yeast is connected to mouthfeel. Yeah. And, and that's what I was just about to ask you. The way you were talking about this, the way I'm tasting this release number 38, the mouthfeel is there. It's coming from the yeast? Well, it's coming Pardon? from the sugars that were not fermented by these. Attenuative yeast will break down. And, and, and by the way, we also boil our wash, which means we not only sanitize and remove wild yeast and bacteria in, in the brew house, but equally importantly, we denature all the enzymes. Those enzymes would normally be in the fermenter during fermentation, continuing to break down complex sugars into fermentable size mm -hmm. uh, sugars like you know dextrose and glucose. So we're left behind with maltodextrose, um, uh, maltotriose, things that brewers know add mouthfeel and flavor to their mm. beer. They also make it all the way into our still, through our still, and into our, our barrels and mature out as sugar compounds that mm. didn't yield alcohol but did yield flavor. That's a weird, bad calculus if you're trying to be consistent and the cheapest raw ingredient uh, that you can get. In other words, we're not competitive. We're, I've said this before, we're very bad at math. What we're, <laughs> what we're enjoying is the flavors that we produce. And I, yeah. I said how yeah, I, when we're- And the textures. Yeah, I said how when we're blended, we're we're focusing on flavor. You know, it's the same thing all the way through the process. So this is a choice based on flavor, not on the economics of it, not on the you know ease in terms of how to produce. So it's just about the flavor, mm. which is why we're always raising money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the questions that I had uh, really had don't have anything to do with wood, Jason. It's interesting mm. that you, Jason Johnson, you yelling, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you think I'm always asking about wood. That's not, that's yes, not the I case do. here. You're always asking um, me about wood, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I know. Um, so so your, your extra long fermentation I, f I find intriguing uh, for, for a few different reasons. So I'm going to ask a series of questions. It reminds me of what distilleries some distilleries in Japan are doing, I'm not talking about single malt producers, but I'm actually talking about um, sake and shochu producers. And, and some of those are producing a rice-based uh, uh, rice based whiskey, right? Using that, that same process. And their fermentation time is three weeks around, uh, but they also incorporate koji to kind of help some of that process and, and so forth. Once their fermentation is done, the ABV of that sake is around 17, 18% alcohol, and then, and then they distill that. And so if you're fermenting for three weeks, is your wash or your beer getting up into the double digits of alcohol, or has it died off at some point and it's just creating flavors as, as that yeast is dying? What, what's going on there? Well, so they're such different processes, but I want to I detangle or untangle 
the, um, the ABV from the yeast itself. What's gotcha. really causing the difference in ABV is the amount of potential sugar that was created in that mash. And then the yeast mm -hmm. either survives or dies. We don't create as much potential sugar. So we're coming out of the kettle at a pretty high 18 Plato or 1074 specific gravity. That's what, that's what comes into our, our fermenters. Um, so mm -hmm. the, the, final, the final wash is pretty high. And that's because we boil. So we've boiled off a lot of the water. We've concentrated the sugars. Ah, uh, yeah. Yep. That then gives us a chance to put in a yeast where the long time comes in. The decision for a long time is twofold. When yeast operates in high temperatures, it, it kind of goes crazy. It produces um, flavors that are both good and bad. It, you know, and that's where a lot of sulfites come from. That's where a lot of DMS uh, uh, sulfites come from. <clears throat> mm -hmm. It also mutates. And so it creates weird pathways to do conjugators. It's, it's famous in rum to do hot fermentations to get these just crazy fruit flavors. Uh, we're yeah, not looking yeah. to have crazy yeasty fruit flavors, but we're looking to have delicious beer <laughs> fruit flavors. So we have to ferment at a cooler temperature. We keep the fermentation at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So that takes it a week instead of taking it two or three days. That's, that's why. But the second thing we do is then we chill that tank for two more weeks. If you've ever had the chance to either homebrew or go to a brewery and drink a beer that just finished fermentation, it's called green beer, it didn't taste good. It's going to be good. In another week or two, it's going to be absolutely delicious. But all the off flavors are still in that solution. The yeast is going to absorb those to um, basically to replenish itself, its cell walls for dormancy. So it's pulling things back out of that solution. And it's getting uh, a lot of the flavors are rounding and getting some of the, the, the nasties are off gassing. And so things mm. come out to be much more balanced. So we just treat it like a beer. We give it the time it needs for the yeast to flocculate out, for those wow. flavors to develop. Yep. It's nothing rocket science to a brewer. This is like what we've been doing for hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah, but it yeah. is kind of crazy to do for a distillery only because it just reduces your throughput so much. It just looks bad. You know, it just mathematically, it just doesn't make sense. But flavor wise, it's kind of the right thing to do. I don't anticipate we're going to be the last distillery to do this. I imagine as more and more brewers shift to distilling, they're going to apply their brewing knowledge and they're going to have clean mm -hmm. fermentations, nice yeast management. They're going to make delicious whiskey. And it's going to be based on this new concept of applying, you know, 150 years of brewing science to yeah. the front end of distilling. Got Interesting. It. Yeah, Got it. Looking yeah, forward that's to great. it. Great. Thank you. I do have a, a wood question, Jeff. I'm going to ask you about your wood. Um, you'd mentioned. <laughs> See, I, I told that you. <laughs> You had mentioned that uh, 5% of the overall blend for release number 38 is, is manzanilla wood, manzanilla sherry wood. And so my, my question to you is, is twofold. Is the remaining 95%, actually maybe threefold, is the remaining 95% virgin oak? That's question number one. And, and then A, if it is, or regardless... Do you have a specific char that you look for in your oak? And yeah, there you go. There's twofold. I'll give you the twofolds. Sure. I'll, I'll answer both of those and add some 
some extra in, in there as well. So, um, yes, the remaining 95% is charred new American oak, virgin oak, mm-hmm. you know, first time using the barrel, whatever terminology you want to use for that. Um, we treat our barrels very well in that every barrel we use for whiskey is um, yard aged for at least 18 months, typically two to three years. Uh, it's also going through a long toast and then various levels of char. So I, I think if you asked us today, we'd probably say for our new oak focused whiskey, we're looking at char number two or number three. as kind of our sweet spot. We have played around with okay. number one. Um, but we don't feel like we get enough of the vanilla and the caramel baking spice, kind of those classic American whiskey flavors. So while it mm. might be slightly better for the malt notes, we actually think the the reused barrels will be the best for that. So we'll focus there for, for the malt flavors of the particular varietals. And we think at char number two and number three, you still do get some distinctions from the malt. It's just not, you know, all the, the subtle notes from it. So that's kind of our, our sweet spot at, at the moment. And, um, yeah, we'll we'll see if it continues to play out that way. <laughs> is is manzanilla something that you've incorporated into your releases before, or is this just another version of hey, we haven't done that before. This is new. Let's give it a go. Yeah, it's mostly the latter. So we have quite a few sherry casks that are maturing in house, um, mostly uh, fino manzanilla and oloroso. Um, we have had one PX barrel, although we use that for gin because we wanted to bring kind of that sweet layer to the gin. Um, mm-hmm. We have used Oloroso in the past. We actually did a, a single cask release of a Fino Sherry that was released 33 fairly recently. Um, this was the first time we used Manzanilla. And, and this one, I think, is exactly what you said. It's sort of something new to present. And I'll tell you exactly how that played out so our last core release which is sort of our you know non-special releases even though as you're hearing pretty much every release is somewhat special (laughs) um but you know they're the ones that have sort of the normal price tag on them if you will um so our last one was 35 and that was actually baroness pale malt all in new oak so this 38 is actually baroness pale malt and then a bit of the manzanilla sherry so it's kind of a fun addition. You know, we sort of showed the Baroness off on its own, and now we're adding that sherry layer to it. So, you know, in reality, we should have sent you a sample of 35 because it would have been fun to taste it side by side. But, you know, mm. live and learn. We'll, we'll do that. You've got our dresses. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, and then the one last question regarding maturation, but, but as it relates specifically to your releases – can you share the the number of bottles that that usually comes out in each release? Definitely, yeah. So some of the really special ones are single casks, so they can be as low as two hundred and fifteen or so at cask strength. And then our largest mm-hmm. release is usually, I think, nine barrels is the max we've ever done. That's actually what release thirty eight okay. is. So this one is uh, two thousand one hundred and nineteen bottles. So really small you know we we use the word small batch on our label and and we mean it you know that obviously as you know doesn't have a legal definition but i think we're we're safely within whatever definition people would give to it two thousand bottles seems fair yeah yeah that that does seem fair that does seem fair um so while while we were talking about this i see jason johnston yellen had poured uh release number 34 and i've had it in my glass for a little bit and this one's this is your peated release, and and I wonder if you can talk about that because I know 
you know, some single malt producers are running peated malt and some single malt producers, rather than dealing with peated malt and having to clean the stills and all of the equipment afterwards, will will put that spirit into casks that previously held a peated whiskey. So can you talk a little bit about, about the process of, of making this one and, and your process surrounding peat in general? Yeah. Uh, well, let me let me jump in on that real quickly because I want to give kudos to uh, Matt Hoffman from Westland Distilling. M- Matt and uh, and and me and maybe Jeff at Copperworks, we were all interested in a peat from Washington State. It it we we had do- all done Google searches and discovered that there was some articles in the nineteen fifty six range somewhere around there that that actually identified almost 450 peat bogs in Washington state <clears throat> and was oh, wow. making a a case for how they should be commercialized. Now, back, this is back before wetlands were, um, the importance of wetlands was identified. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 2020, uh, or actually about 2017, and uh, Westland had the resources and the vision to act on that. They discovered that there was one peat bog in Shelton. It was being mined commercially for uh, gardeners and, and uh, you know, that peat was being sold. They uh, worked with Skagit Valley Malting to mm-hmm. mine that peat from the bottom of a lake, pull it up, wash all the mud and sticks out, put it in a pile, let it drain, squeeze it, pelletize it, put it into a smoker, blow that smoke into a drum while the malt is drying and flavor the malt with that. We, Copperworks, had been open for a few weeks when this is going and making whiskey and said, yeah, you know, that's something, or I'm sorry, a few months. And we said, yeah, that's something we'd like to also participate in. So we all, the same week, were making peat whiskey from peat from Washington State. And we were fortunate at Copperworks that we put it in new charred American oak. With the number one char, we were trying to keep the uh, the char from uh, from removing any of the peat characteristics. Sure. It took about th- two years, and it was delicious. At three years, it was really delicious. And at four years, we said, we've got to get this out of the barrels before it literally overwhelms the peat character. Yeah. Mm. We called Westland and we said, guys, you deserve the credit for the discovery of this, Pete, and, and manufacturing the first batches. We're not going to release this until you release yours. We're just going to put it in wow. glass and let it sit. Yeah, that was great. And then COVID hit. Wow. And uh, we said, you know what? We need to sell this. So we, we called the backup. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, they said, sell it, man. Go, go, do it. Stay open. Do whatever you have to do. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's totally fine. And so we still intend to do a release with Westland when they are, they're probably about a year and a quarter out from releasing okay. Uh, okay. their version of it. Their version was in bourbon barrels. And it's also going to lose a lot of its character because this first batch of peat had very little peat character compared to what you might find in Isla, you know, those mm-hmm. really big mm-hmm. phenolic um, band-aid yeah. uh, kind of flavors. But it's delicious in the finish with that smoke coming through. It reminds me in a way, as you said, Joshua, of a cask-finished whiskey 
and that it mm. sneaks up in you on the end is instead of in the in the front. And yeah, so, all, so all that is the diplomatic way to say that this is the first ever whiskey produced with U.S. sourced peat. Yeah. Yep, Marvel. that's why. We can make those <laughs> crazy claims once we give Westland a little bit of credit, you know. <laughs> the texture on this one is off the charts. It's so silky and yeah. and tongue-coating and, and seemingly more so than release number 38 which mm-hmm. which had a remarkable right it was a texture that i took note of I said okay that's that that's good this one is is over the top and so do you are you fermenting differently are you distilling differently when it comes to your peated malt is it is it just simply cask influence what what's going on here that's amplifying that uh that that richness and texture well, it's also 104 proof, so it's 2% alcohol more than the one before, which okay. what that means is that it's got more uh, uh, flavor molecules per drop than the previous one. But more importantly, it's, a, it's Copeland malt. It's a different malt than the Baroness malt, which mm. was featured in the other one. Baroness malt is sweeter and a little thinner, whereas Copeland is not as sweet but a little oilier. And so I think we've come across uh, just the fact that this malt and the peat binding with it and et cetera, and a little bit higher alcohol may be adding to that mouthfeel. And I'll also say that I find our whiskey from sherry casks tends to be, I would say maybe a little bit sharper because of some of the sulfur notes. So it's not quite, Mm -hmm. it doesn't quite have that like unctuous mouthfeel that, our whiskey gets in New American Oak. So release 38, having a bit of that tones down mm-hmm. the mouthfeel, just a slight <clears throat> amount. Hmm. It's interesting yeah. that you say that. I'd, if you just walked up to me in the street and gave me 38, I would talk about the mouth texture of it. It's interesting when you're knowledgeable about all the casks in your warehouse, you're able to make statements like, that one's got slightly less mouthfeel than normal, still a ton. It's not missing yeah. anything. Yeah, and I mean, that's why we tend to not do, you know, single casks from sherry because we find that that, you know, we lose that mouthfeel too much. But when you're doing 5%, mm-hmm. 10%, you can get those nice, beautiful flavors and aromas from the sherry and retain all that beautiful mouthfeel that we get with our whiskey when it's in new oak or even first spill, whatever you want to call it, or our reused barrels. <laughs> mm. uh, on behalf it's, of our listeners, do you know a, a PPM measurement on no. your, your Washington Pete? No, we don't. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure that phenols are part of it. So when you talk about uh, phenols as, uh, as a parts per million in a Scottish whiskey, you're talking about a malt that, I mean, a peat that has been, um, you know, primarily from sphagnum moss prim- of a particular variety I, I'm yeah. not certain that that's what this is. A lot of this is tea myrtle. Um, that's more of a bush, and that means it's more witty and has more sticks, and they burn more like campfire than they do like smoldering uh, moss. So I, hmm. I'm not even sure that we have, you know, six-chain double-bonded carbon phenols that we <laughs> do in in this that we would in a scotch. Mm-hmm. Yep, I, I hear you. I, I'm definitely getting subtle Highland peat notes mm-hmm. 
going on in here. Yeah. And yeah. I think yeah. it is easy when you see the word peat on a label to only think of Isla peat yeah, and totally. medicinal. But, you know, we've we've done so many tastings where someone says, I don't like peat. What they mean is they don't like heavy, medicinal, iodine right. Isla peat. You pour a Highland peated whiskey and suddenly they say, oh, I, I like peated whiskey. I, I never saw that yeah. coming. So the like, honey well, it's notes. Because it is right, right yes. fragrant, yeah. wood smoke. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, we it's, were, a, it's a different beast. We were at our first whiskey festival this past Saturday for ages i don't it feels like a hundred years but i guess it was about a Whoa. year um and it it was the first time we presented the peated at something like that and you get so many people who are like pete i don't like pete and and you have to say well wait this is totally different you know different flavors also like jason said earlier it's relatively subtle also you have the new oak component which you're not used to tasting mm-hmm. with peated whiskey right because almost mm-hmm. every peated whiskey in the world is in you know used bourbon barrels for the most part so this is a, a very different beast as you say it was funny people would come across uh, this was a uh, world whiskey event so this time they actually had whiskeys from scotland and, and other parts of the world and uh had a, a gentleman come over and he says i just tasted my first uh isla whiskey he, he called it islay but i knew what he meant and <laughs> and translated and it's awful. It's like a Band-Aid. It was like dirt. And and I said, uh, that was a, a peated whiskey, right? And he goes, oh, I hate peat. And I said, I'm going to pour you our other whiskey if you promise me you will taste our peated whiskey. And I said, whereas he had tasted the Ardbeg 10, I said, if Ardbeg 10 is a 10, ours is a 1 in uh-huh. terms of the yeah. amount of peat. And he's like, I love peat whiskey. I just like a number one. <laughs> yeah, right. It definitely oh, wow. has a place. There's no doubt about that. Um, just as, as you bring it up here, the sense of world whiskey. One of the things, obviously, with us talking to you, to Westland, I was just at Virginia Distillery Company, American single malt where are we at with that category and what does the future hold for that category? And again, I just love it when you look into your crystal ball, which is why I always ask these questions of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have more we have more than a crystal ball at this point, which is which oh. is great. So as as you may know, and some of your listeners may know, um, we were one of the founding members of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. So Copper Works and eight mm-hmm. other distilleries. I'm now about 170 members signed on to that to help, you know, create the definition, protect uh, and educate about American single malt. So the the really good news is the work over the past five years by that commission has caused the TTB to add the definition of American single malt to their um, spring agenda this year. So we're expecting a proposed rule in about December of this year. And it'll go through some public commenting and, um, you know, hopefully become final at some point in, in 2022, if not shortly thereafter. Um, we don't see a whole lot of opposition to the rule that we've been floating around. So we believe, you know, between not having opposition and having constant communication with the TTB, um, we believe it's going to be, you know, pretty close, if not identical to what we've said. And, and we don't expect the public comment period to be too bad because nobody's spoken up too yeah. negatively yet. So, uh, we're in a really good place and super excited, and you know we don't want to count our chickens before they hatch, but uh, things are going sure, really well. Sure, sure. But I, I'll 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 throw some interesting uh, color into that. 
imagine being around when bourbon got a standard of identity or rye <laughs> got a standard of identity. We're watching an, a birth of a new American type of whiskey. And it's not just it, for a regional whiskey. Like, you know, I, I love what New York is doing with its rye, <clears throat> but that's for New York. This is for all of America that we're seeing a new type of whiskey. I don't think our generation, frankly, uh, we're all old enough guys of Jeff being maybe just barely old enough to see this become a standard. But in a few generations, people will mention Scotch, bourbon, uh, Irish, Japanese, American single malt. It'll just roll off the tongue. If we've done our job, <laughs> it will be as recognized of a category. Now, by then, there may even be regionals like we have uh, in mm -hmm. Scotland. One mm -hmm. of the things that we're trying not to do is to create such a small net, a small umbrella that we can't include innovation. So that's why we don't mm -hmm. care about how long it's been in the barrel or, or what, what size of barrel it is. We do care about the fact that it's malted barley as opposed to malted rye. That took a little while to convince uh, say Lance Winters and some other people of, but uh, One, other than 100% malted barley? Because I know right now it has to be 51%. So you're pushing yes. for 100%. Yeah, yes. So so for American single malt whiskey, it has to be 100%. For malt whiskey, it still exists as a category uh, of which you can have 51% or actually 50% or over. Yeah. Okay. And I know that the, the, the current designation as it reads also specifies new charred oak. And so are you looking to yeah. open that up as well? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it, it does not have to be new. It does not have to be charred, but it does have to be oak. So it could just be toasted. Um, it has to be under seven, seven hundred liters. liters. Okay. So you yep. can't, you can't put it in a fooder and call it uh, American it. single malt whiskey, but, but you can put it in some pretty large butts and bigger um, cask like that. So what, what we tried to do is to make sure that everything was included. Um, you know that the Japanese just recently struggled with this. All you had to do to call something Japanese whiskey is bottle any whiskey in Japan. And that, <laughs> that uh, harmed the Japanese whiskey producers. So they're fortunate that they made uh, this. They followed the, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society's uh, rules a little tighter. We used the American rules, the rules that say things like uh, no age statement is required if it's un if it's over four years and if it's and it can be all uh, the way down to zero or I'm sorry, one day as long as yeah. it's in oak and has an age statement. Um, so yeah, yeah, we, we tried to cast a bigger net. One of the things that we Copperworks got in was that the mash has to be made in America, but it doesn't have to be made at the distillery where the distillation and fermentation happen. So uh -huh. that's because we were partnering with breweries and nobody at the table could think of any good reason why that shouldn't <laughs> be allowed, right? So so we can yeah. continue to partner with breweries, make a wash, bring it back. Uh, we could have fermented it at the brewery, except for that the federal government doesn't allow us to transfer that. So we have to ferment it at the distillery. And then we can distill. Ah, uh, uh, okay. gotcha. Yeah, <clears throat> gotcha. People listening might say, "Oh, no age statement. You know, you should have done that. You really missed the boat." 
But just to add a little more color to that, you know, that's based on the way the TTB's rules are written today. So you don't want to come in and suggest a totally new framework um, for some specific type of whiskey because they're just going to look at it and be like, no, we're not going to change the whole rules of whiskey. So you do have to play within the American whiskey standards to, to some extent. Um, and that's a place where it, it made sense to yeah. just stick with the, the transparency rule about a young whiskey rather than regulating a particular amount of years in the barrel. Yeah, it certainly doesn't seem like a controversial point. I know that when Scotch producers started moving from 12s and 10s down into 8s, and then under 8s started being non-age statement, but we knew it had to be between 3 and probably 8 um, to, to be a, a non-age statement on the shelves, I think people got into the swing of that, right? To begin with, didn't mm-hmm. feel entirely right, but it was good whiskey. As long as it a tastes good price great. Yeah. That we were all enjoying. Right. And so yeah. I, I like your point, Jeff, about this full transparency up to what would then be four, and then you could choose to have or not have from four years old and above. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we, you know, we, over the it's funny, you know, we've had this whole conversation for what, over an hour now. And when we were talking about this whiskey that we're tasting in our glasses, we're barely talking about age, right? And I think that's great because you really should be focusing mm. on, you know, the full production, but also just how does it taste? How does it smell? How does it, how's the mouth feel? It's the most important bit. Well, yeah. and and for me, when it when it comes to to single malts, and I, I know we're kind of playing around with the world category here, but but it doesn't have to. I feel like Scotch played such an important role, really a marketing role. And how people got to know single malts, yep. that they then started applying Scottish rules to Indian whiskey and American single malt. And those rules don't fit, right? Scottish climate doesn't look anything like what's going on in your warehouse. It doesn't look like what's happening here for us in Virginia. It doesn't look like what's happening in India. And so why would you say a single malt had to be at least 8 or 10 or 12 to be good when your climate was completely different. And that's and I know personally, that's freed me up to come into other countries, other zones, and just say, what's going on with your distillate? You know, yeah. the way you talk yeah. about fermentation, fascinating. Beer background, fascinating. The use of manzanilla, fascinating. Do we really need to be talking about years in a barrel? It, it, it seems like a, mm. a bit of a cul-de-sac uh, as yeah, far as the, the conversation goes. The, the climate's one part, the fermentation's one part, the distillation, you know, you could have really tight cuts and make a really clean whiskey that you wanted to age less time. The type of barrels, obviously, if you're using new oak, like many of our releases, that's going to create mature flavors much faster than a used barrel in Scotland. So you're absolutely right. It's comparing apples to oranges. So the rules should not be the exact same for an apple and an orange. I think right. about Cavallon, uh, uh, um, yeah, Taiwanese whiskey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, I've, I've heard their angel share is between 12 and 20 percent, depending on where in the warehouse it is. And that, you know, it can get up to 130 Fahrenheit. And in, you know, two to three years, their whiskey is just delicious and baked. Mm. And there's no way you would want a seven or eight year Cavallon whiskey. It would, right. first of all, it'd be gross. It'd be empty. It'd be a barrel tar. But secondly mm-hmm. is it, there wouldn't be anything left. You know, and, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. glad that age statements are are taking a backseat to flavor. 
Right. It's definitely important to point out, you know, Taiwan and, you know, Milk and Honey in Tel Aviv, you know, is another place like that. But then also, mm -hmm. since yep. we're talking about American single malt, especially for people who might be international listeners, I mean, we have that diversity and climate in our country, right? So that's why it has to reflect yeah. in this rule is we have, you know, Texas where it's super hot. We have, I mean, even in our state, you know, we have the Western side of Washington is relatively cool, coastal. You go four or five hours drive or really even three hours drive inwards and you got a super hot, you know, where warehouses could hit 120, 130 in the summertime. So mm, yeah. we need to make sure that the American single malt rule considers that. Yeah. So it's so, good. It's uh, it's it's looking like it's going to pass, and I think we're watching the birth of a new a type of whiskey, and it's an exciting time to be seeing that happen. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love this, but I've had something sort of niggling in the in the back of my brain, where when we when we think of single malt whiskey, right? Scotch whiskey comes to the fore. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about world whiskey, whether it's Macmira in Sweden or Amra in India, milk and honey in Israel, the French are making single malt, etc. Mm -hmm. And that all falls with under the, the umbrella of world whiskey. Would you say American whiskey creating its own designation joins the world whiskey category? or becomes a third category, much like bourbon is its own category, yet exclusively to America, and rye is its own category, et cetera. Where, where do you see American single malt fitting in, if at all, if it's only into its own thing? Because we're such big barley producers, and because there's already 2,000 distilleries probably heading towards four or 5,000 someday, and because we are... Um, a big enough country to make enough volumes, I think we're looking at something more like bourbon. It's not yeah. just going to be a world whiskey where there's four or five um, good examples of it. There probably will be 400 or 500 good examples of American mm. single malt whiskey. Mm -hmm. And that's big enough to be a thing. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's going to be its own category. It, it'll yeah. take a while. But it's likely to happen. Yeah, I agree. Love that's, it or hate it, good. the the U.S. always gets that kind of focus, and you know, for us, we love it. <laughs> Some other countries might not like that as much, but I think <laughs> there's going to be a natural focus on oh, American single malt. That's a cool thing. We need to have that everywhere in the world. Interesting. Well, yeah. and the conversation that I was having with Amanda Beck with it at Virginia Distillery Company is, uh, we thought there would almost be an inevitability to regionality. And I like what you said earlier, Jason, where when you're creating this, and you, I think you had added this as well, Jeff, when you're creating this and you've got a country the size of the United States, you want as many people to be players in that as possible. But I also think once you've got that created and on the books, we're already talking about Texas yep. single malt. We're yep. already talking about Washington single malt. Right. And I think we'll start to have those conversations around production and cask use and maturation and, and how it's done in particular pockets. You know, the same way we talk about regionality in Scotland, not everyone's doing it the same way in Speyside. Even though you know 70% of the industry is in Speyside, they're all doing it slightly different. That's what we love 
about this category. So even if we talk about Texas single malt, they're not all producing it the same way. You don't all have to follow suit in Washington, but there are going to be things that you have in common that are different from Texas, from Virginia, from the Northeast. And as a consumer, I think that'll be really exciting to explore. And when you start talking about numbers like four or potentially 500 producers of American single malt, we're going to be looking for different ways to parse that out, to be able to say yeah. they're not yeah. a monolith. You know, Although let's I, explore. I wonder if it's not going to be based on region and it's going to be more based on philosophy of flavor. So, for instance, some yeah. distilleries may be known as terroir-focused, meaning that they're really trying to demonstrate flavors. And other distilleries may be uh, looking more as traditional. So they're trying to make more of a Jim Swain flavor using mm -hmm. the right type of uh, barrels and the right type of uh, mash profile. And so mm -hmm. you'd, you'd start to recognize um, intent. And that's why I call it a philosophy of flavor. The, oh, the like distillery yeah. was built with an intent to make a type of flavor. And as they move into more distinct groupings, you'd be able to put those together. And that, that's what I'm really looking forward to, is to see how that, um, that grows in the next 20 or 30 years into these natural categories. Yeah, I, l I love that, that thought behind intent. But really quickly, to, to regionality, though, you know, I think we, we're already seeing, or we have seen for, for years within the bourbon category, right? Tennessee has its own designation. And then we right. started hearing stories that uh, the governor of Indiana is, is pressing to create an Indiana rye designation. And so I, I wonder if, if that right? Because this is all new. This is all in the, in the infant stages. I wonder if people already being familiar with the regionality might lean more toward that aspect of it and less about intent. But I imagine your commission together can help yeah. push the, the intent agenda. I think the regionality can work alongside that a bit in that it kind of pr provides okay. a baseline, right? So if you're talking to a a Texas producer and you're thinking, well, Texas means hot climate. And then they tell you, actually, we keep all our barrels indoors and it's, you know, 60 degrees. We chill it. You know, we love air conditioning. We hate, we hate the environment. Um, you know, you kind of have that baseline of understanding, okay, well, here's how you'd expect Texas to be. And here's how this distillery is doing something different. And I, I used kind of a horrible example of it. Um, but you, you get the feeling you kind of have that regional baseline but it doesn't mean everybody in that region is going to play by those rules necessarily. It's, yeah. it's, it's right back to the Scottish example of distilleries in the Highlands or in Speyside creating a peated whiskey when that's typically not what modern distillation has looked like in those regions. So, so yeah, that, it's, that's, a, that's, it's an interesting question because I think if you asked a lot of current uh, Scottish distillers, are they happy to be included in a region? Uh, you'd get a mixed bag of answers. I think some of them are going to be like, you know what? Those regions were a long time ago that that we fit into that category. And mm -hmm. It's no longer as valid as it used to be. But on the other hand, um, some of them are going to benefit by being grouped into 
where they're physically located so that yeah. tourism and, and other um, marketing opportunities come along. So I think both will happen. And we'll yeah. just have to be careful not to let it get too prescriptive. What I see is difficult about the um, uh, Scotch Whiskey Association and about bourbon and Tennessee whiskey is that they have legislated themselves almost out of innovation. They can mm. only make a traditional product. And when they go to try to do something too radical, they can't. They're told mm. that that's, that no longer yeah. is part of a yeah. category. Yeah, I and, think, you know, that's too bad. It leaves an opportunity for us, but it's too bad for them. Uh, I think it'd be better if we follow more like the craft brewers did, right? Where there, there emerged some regional styles, but other people made them, right? So you have a West Coast IPA, for example. And not only can yeah. you find that on the East Coast, you can find them in South Africa and Japan and Israel and wherever <laughs> else. You know, that has become a style that, you know, kind of has a historical reference, but doesn't mean yeah. you have to be on the West Coast to make it. So something like that could be kind of interesting where you don't lock in something, but it kind of comes from somewhere. Yeah, no, I think that's that's very well said. Um, with, with the interest of time, and, and we, we all might need to get out of here, um, <laughs> we, we like to get out of here with, with a question that I really feel like we've, we've just covered it in terms of this burgeoning new category. But as far as Copperworks goes, what are you each most excited about through the rest of 2021 and into 2022? You first, Jeff. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody <laughs> said you had to answer in 30 seconds. <laughs> I, and well, I, go. <laughs> I, think, I think the obvious thing is um, looking forward to life getting a little bit back to normal, you know, being able to, from yeah. a personal side, being able to get to see people again and, and give them handshakes and hugs and high fives. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's going to happen at the end of this year or next year, but I know it will happen at, at some point. And that kind of goes along with the business, too, because I look forward to kind of spreading our whiskey around the region and around the world. Mm. You know, one of the things that COVID has done is, is opened up lots of Zoom calls with various folks in, you know, Italy and the UK and China, Australia um, to start, you know, talking about selling our whiskey in those regions. So I look forward to not only starting to send product to people, but I'm going to meet people that are tasting it and enjoying yeah. it. Um, so really looking forward to the, the world opening up again at, at some point and, and be able to hang out with people and share a whiskey. Yeah. Brilliant. Nice. Brilliant. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. Parker? Well, uh, of course, all of that, uh, because that, that is really driving uh, a lot of everything uh, in the industry. Um, uh, particular to Copperworks is we've got some really big plans uh, to open two restaurants and an event center and a brewery, uh, a big brewery um, that will be able to supply us all of our wash um, and even maybe allow us to make a little bit of beer. So what we're suddenly seeing is because of the, the change in uh, COVID, we, we actually think we have more opportunities in the future than we had before, both in terms of locations wow. and, and money that people were not investing and are ready to invest. So I, I just see this as Copperworks 2.0, where we're, we're, we've proven to ourselves what our flavors are capable of. Now we need to mm -hmm. do bigger volumes of it. So we're looking at a tenfold increase in production from 120 barrels a year to 1,200 barrels a year. 
that's going to wow. allow us that's going to allow us to actually um, survive the growth <laughs> as opposed to just kind of get washed out. Yeah. And well, shame, yeah, shameless quick. plug, shameless plug for that, uh, if you'll allow. Um, that is actually through regulation crowdfunding. So individual investors can become part of that. That's going to launch in a few weeks. Um, SEC rules don't allow us to say a ton, and you probably don't want me to just do a full sales pitch. But uh, <laughs> if you are interested, <laughs> if you are interested, join our mailing list because you'll be one of the first to find out about that when it launches in a few weeks. That's very yeah. cool. How does one join the mailing list? Uh, just copperworksdistilling.com. Just scroll to the bottom. There's a little button. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we, Beautiful. as always, we wish you nothing but the best of luck and ongoing success. As you can see from even the length of this interview, it's so easy to spend time together. Yes, and I just I love, you love, you know, I love hearing more about Copperworks and seeing the journey that you continue to be on. So... Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. And thanks. Thanks for being such good supporters of the industry and really treating uh, small distilleries so well. We really appreciate the the attention and the support. It's it's what makes it all fun and possible. So thank you. Fun. Keyword. Cheers. Yeah. (laughs) Fun. There you go. It makes me happy knowing that Jason Parker has now put in a couple of episodes. He's such a wonderful chap to talk to. And, and this was my first time really getting to sit down with Jeff and talk to him. And that was incredibly rewarding as well. Mm-hmm. So so between the two of them, I had a blast in that interview. I did too. I the the more I talk with people like Jason and Jeff and Matt Hoffman and you know, the list goes on. We're, you know, I didn't speak with her directly, but you with Amanda, and we'll have some other American single malt producers coming on to the podcast before too long. It's It's been nice as, as a casual observer and as peers in the industry bottling whiskey from these distillers, you know, watching them go through this evolution and, and in a way being a part of it. On the sidelines, of course, but in a way being a part of it. And it's just, it reminds me in a way of of Kilhoman and, you know, getting into that distillery in the mid-2000s and having the ability to watch that evolution. We, we now have this ability to watch the evolution of American single malt as a category, which is cool in and of Wholeheartedly. Itself. Yeah. Yep. yep. Wholeheartedly. You know, in, in 150 years when America's celebrating that tradition hmm. and we're long, long gone, we will have been the people who sat here at the front edge of history mm-hmm. uh, and got to see it being started and evolving and developing and building. It's cool. It, it's sometimes easy to forget that. and I And I do think... We've had this conversation on and off over the, the years of the podcast. But it's it's easy for, for Scotland to be the the king of the castle, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where you've got the, the 200 years of history, the 150 years, the 100 years of history. 
and to think everything else is just a facsimile of that. Yeah. But but I think the way and we said this in the last episode, but I think if you look at the way India is building and Australia is building and New Zealand is building and America is obviously building and, and other 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 countries. But to see them building, we're talking single malt. Mm-hmm. And it's just so cool to be talking single malt yep. and putting this country or this part of this country next to that part of the same country or another country. <laughs> it's just fun. And, mm-hmm. and, and I know we keep, because it needs to be repeated, but we keep repeating it. Whiskey is fun. Let's remember to have fun at all times with this. And so don't poo-poo something because it's not Scottish single malt, but go in with an open mind. Go in with a an open and honest palate mm-hmm. and ask yourself, do I like this? Not, is this that? Is this doing what the thing that I love in that? Oh, thank you is so much. Is yes. this doing a thing that I like? Yes, yes, yeah, it, it, exactly. It, it took people years to get in on Japanese whiskey, to understand, specifically Japanese single malt, to understand what's going on there. And for many years, it was just, yeah, I don't know about that Japanese scotch. Uh, what are they making it from rice? You know, saying it in a pejorative way. And and now you you can't touch a bottle of Yamazaki 12-year-old for, for less than 120 bucks, you know? It used to be a $35 bottle, right? And and then Amrut hits the scene and think about the the uphill battle that you know good people like Raj Sabarwal had in just getting Amrut Indian single malt whiskey not just into people's glasses and onto their palates but into their brains as something that is worth their time and their interest or into the country. Or into the well, yes, yeah. right, right? <laughs> yes, like rest, yeah. recipes had to go to the TTB yeah. Yeah. for yeah. approval for a single malt, hundred mm-hmm. percent malted barley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the beginning, middle, and end of the recipe. <laughs> Maybe maturation, blah blah blah. But right, it's it, it was a process. It was a known process from a new country. Yeah, and it was all, and there was nothing in the books for it. Yeah, where do you go? So. So yeah, I hope we see a designation for American single malt by the end of this year. Um, I know that would make life a little bit easier for those who are on the front lines of American single malt production. And then you can really equip the consumer, right? It's yeah. not just, a, well, what does Westland consider that? And what does Copperworks consider that? And what does Virginia Distillery Company consider that? It's now, here's what the federal government considers mm. American single mm-hmm, malt, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then you can start to make more subtle impressions with the consumer when you've got a baseline from which to operate. Yeah. Let's close this off with a question that I've been meaning to ask you. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then we have to go into to the news. I'm, I'm actually, I'm very excited about this news segment, but... Very. Over the course of our conversation with Jason and, and with Jeff and, and then subsequent conversations, just you and me sipping some, some copper works, I'm curious to know what are, 
what are the notes within Copperworks that you find really interesting? What what has them standing apart? And I realize you were not expecting this answer. So I am going to lead this. And and I'm going to say that, you know, firstly, Copperworks seems to be quite unique. There, There's this bright, yeah. bright, almost grapefruity citrus quality that that came through in all of the samples a bit of f- like fresh fennel and these these vegetal notes but they were always bright and sweet and inviting you don't find those in Westland you don't find those in Virginia Distillery Company you don't find those in some of the other smaller producers that are producing their own single malt and tasting them it was quite clear that these are very spirit-driven notes, yeast-driven notes, malt-driven notes, and and so I'm, and so that that's right. We talk about being spirit guys, right? And so that's what excites me about their spirit—that grapefruit, that fennel, that that bright, sweet vegetal quality. But that's me. What attracts you to Copperworks? So you know how there are times when we talk about Amrut. And we talk about oh, there's a there's a cardamom in here, mm-hmm. or there's a you know caraway seed or things like that, right? You, you start to go down those kind of brown spice paths, yeah, yep. and you start to say, are these really here, or is my brain <laughs> leading the witness? Yeah, yeah. Knowing what we know about Jason with a brewing background knowing that they're essentially making a, an unhopped beer, mm-hmm. which is then being distilled at a very slow rate. When you talk about that citrus note and that grapefruit note, mm-hmm. for me, and again, is the brain leading the witness on this one, mm-hmm. I get an almost hoppy component. Interesting. That is a citrus oil, mm. a grapefruit oil, mm-hmm. which which I love because it lends itself to texture as well. And I, yes. I think of Copperworks as an incredibly textured whiskey. Mm-hmm. Agree. But there's that little bit of hoppiness going around there that I c- can't get away from. And even if I'm just sitting of a night pouring Copperworks, there will invariably come a moment when I look away from the TV or I look away from my book and I look at the copperworks and I say, are there hops in here? Mm-hmm. And there are not. There are not. <laughs> but but that's where my mind goes with them. Yeah. And, and that can definitely speak to a, a brightness and a, and a citrus. What I'll also say is I often think of the wood spice that frames the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an element that I thoroughly enjoy from them as well. So bright and citrus with a wood frame. Mm. Yes. See, I thought you were going to get notes of Seattle Mariner seats and Google <laughs> and Amazon and, uh, and things like that. Uh, and other low-hanging fruit. And other low-hanging fruit. Uh, but it's interesting that you bring that up, this this sort of sense of, I know there's not hops in there, but boy, does it smell and taste like there may be hops in there. It makes me think of um, of Godin Carolus's 
own whiskey, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It's this Belgian mm-hmm. whiskey that's made from the Golden Carolus triple ale, but it's a mm-hmm. hopless version. And when you taste it, you say, that's like a beer. I think there may be hops in there. I think what our palate is doing is A, it's listening to our brain a bit, which maybe it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And then B, it's good to remember that whether it's Copperworks or it's Golden Carolus, they're using a brewer's yeast. And mm-hmm. that brewer's yeast is just going to present different flavors than any other single malt when they're using standard distiller's yeast, right? It gets back to that bright, fruity character coming through. And you add that along with it comes from a beer mash, just a hopless hopless one, but yet you've got the word beer in mind and you're thinking hops. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wonder. It's just, it's just so funny. This is release number 38 that I'm sipping on that's inspiring these comments. Mm, mm-hmm. And I remember when this came in, I was literally sitting in my chair watching, you know, TV with my wife. And I remember pulling up the bottle to investigate, to see if hops were a component of it. Yeah. And so, you know, the brain is a remarkable, remarkable thing. And so I, I wonder if there was a process running in my brain, but I wasn't actively thinking this is Copperworks. I wasn't actively thinking mm. this is from the, the brewers. I wasn't actively thinking this is using Belgian brewer's yeast or this is using brewer's yeast, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I just, to the front of my brain, I wasn't running any of those processes. I was just sipping on a whiskey. And it, this is one of the highest compliments I can always give is it reminded me of our Chicago bottling that ha- that was the light whiskey that spent time in the ex-rye barrel that was also an ex-beer barrel. Uh-huh. And that hop oil comes through yeah. in that whiskey. Yep. And the light whiskey, the orange gumdrop notes come through in that. That's what, that's what release number 38 was talking to me about. That's what I was getting as I just simply sat with a dram. Beautiful. You're right. That is perhaps the highest compliment that you could give. (laughs) I think now might be the perfect time to bring in the paperboy. We have spent a long time, numerous months, <laughs> promising the arrival of... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Schlemiel, Schlemizel, Hassenbeff Incorporated. Jessica Lomas, we have been threatening all summer to bring you into the news segment to talk about ROW release number three. And now that day is upon us. Let's be clear. We have made promises. We have failed on those promises. And, and, then, and then we said we, we have to finally follow through or else our listeners will just lose all faith in us. But now the timing is perfect, which I think speaks to the 10 years we've been running this company, because you just <laughs> poured four of the five or four of the six. Six. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
to reiterate, the timing is perfect because you just poured four of the six at Maltstock in the Netherlands. So how was Maltstock, first of all? And then tell us about these releases. I'm, I'm really disappointed to start with that you missed a, an opportunity there to make a joke about follow-through, but the moment has passed. <laughs> um, <laughs> as tea comes out of Whoa. Jason's nose. Uh, <laughs> Maltstock was great, was amazing. Um, I was saying just before we hit record, I can't believe it's a week since I was uh, mm. speeding down at a responsible speed to Maltstock from Amsterdam. Um, and my first time driving a car on the incorrect side of the road which is quite exciting as a an adventure as itself. Um, but yeah, it was it was really lovely to to be back um, in the relaxed atmosphere of Maltstock, which is always a pleasure to be at. Did you ever... I was really... Oh, go, go ahead, Jason. I was really surprised that of all the traveling you've done and all the places you've gone, based on your UK driving, you've never driven on the other side of the road. Yeah, I, I guess because like a lot of my travel involves alcohol and you shouldn't really mix that with <laughs> driving. <laughs> was, the, was, was there ever a point where you found yourself on what you thought is the right side of the road and wondered, why are these signs not facing me? <laughs> no, not actually much worse. When I came home and I got in the car and drove here, I had to forcibly think right to the left. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're back home, got on the other side of the road. I was so, so vigorously... Yeah. <sighs> practicing thinking about the other side that yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was I, okay. I, was, I was telling Jess one of my worst moments in Glasgow was at the end of a week when I'd been over there and leading a tour and driving all over the country and I was returning the rental uh, minibus and I'd gone down Union Street in a bus lane which is reserved for buses and taxis I'd then made a, a right turn but I'd done an American style tight right turn instead of the British sweeping right turn to the other side of the road. And as soon as I made my turn, I realized all the cars were facing me <laughs> and I widened my turn a little bit. Uh, so as not to die. That, so as not to die. It was a little bit of a shocking moment in Glasgow city centre, but I love to tell the tale. So she did uh, much better than that. You didn't do any uh, sweeping rights no, no sweeping. when you were in the Netherlands. I do. I remember mentally doing the first roundabout and thinking roundabout, tick. And after that, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, so, yes. I was going to say that the Dutch style of driving is not relaxed. It's very um, just in and out really quick. And they cut people up in a way that we don't quite do here. So, yeah, that was kept me on my toes. But it's fine. It's fine. I've done it. And I would be happy to do it again now. So Good. Mm -hmm. So that... <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You've still got me thinking about in and out really quick. So... Be, while while we page HR, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, talk, talk to us about the six for ROW. Uh, the six for Number ROW, three. so the four that the people at Maltstock will have had uh, was we have a Paul John four-year-old, um, we put the Glengarry nine-year-old, we put the Port Dundas 20 and the Dalian eight-year-old. And there are two more to our yeah. collection, which is a four-square rum, 10-year-old, and mm. an Ardmore 23-year-old that I did not take. Okay, let's let's rewind a little bit because I have a yeah. feeling you rattled these off and people are saying, well, wait, wait a second, you just said Paul John. What, what's going on there? So let, let's can you unpack these bottlings a little bit, what people thought of them, what you, what you think of them, and flavor profiles. 
Okay, so for the listeners at home, take out your pen and pencil and write these down. <laughs> pen and pencil. Shall there be pen and paper? Yes. Oh, no, no, no. Pen uh, and pencil. Pen and pencil. Multicolored yeah. notes. I like that. I always have two colors on my notes. Um, so the first one I mentioned there was our uh, Paul John, but maybe I'm going to do it by the way we pulled them in malt stock. That'll help me remember more. So um, we did two uh, two in conversation sessions um, which is a smaller group of like 15 people up in the chapel at Maltstock uh, where we poured <laughs> we in the royal sense I poured <laughs> or the lovely volunteers poured um, two um, two releases in each one because we only had 20 minutes so I didn't want to make it too much like speed drinking I wanted to leave it so that we could have feedback and get people to talk to us so <laughs> in the first conversation with I poured the um, Glengarry and the Port Dundas. Mm. So that's our Port Dundas 20-year-old that's from a first fill bourbon barrel, uh, which is quite delicious. I love any excuse to have a kind of older grain. That mm. that really pleases me. Um, Agreed. And it, it was funny because um, Messrs. Stirk and Watt had poured their electric coup release the night before where they also have a Port Dundas that has been finished in a Kalila. So we were jokingly saying this was, you know, the rawest form of Port Dundas <laughs> in its natural state. Um, the pure uncut Port Dundas. Yeah, which um, which led to the best tasting note I have been given, which was drinkable. Ooh. Pause. Ooh. Um, and I, uh, I'm delighted with that. I think we should rerun all the labels and we should have single cast nation drinkable. Because I think that's the best accolade. What more could you ever want from somebody to say, I think this is drinkable? Yeah. And they said it in a sincere so, way. It wasn't a derogatory, ah, it's drinkable. It was like a genuine, oh, this is drinkable. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was curious when I heard that, sometimes Joshua and I'll say, you pull the cork on a Friday and you recycle the bottle on a Monday. Is it that type of, yeah. of messaging? Is it that type of meaning with, oh, I could drink this? You know, Joshua's famous one is I could drink the shit out of this. Is it is it of that ilk? Uh, I don't know what kind of chill filtering you're doing over there. But, um, yeah, yeah, that, that is the chill filtration. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that is uh, very much the vein in which it was meant. And it wasn't meant in oh, a mean-spirited way. Um, but yeah. I said that was great accolade. Um, I said that I was going to have that added to our labels. So the second thing that we poured in that tasting was the Glengarry nine-year-old, which is a mm. first fill bourbon, which I'm super excited about because I love Glengarry. I don't think we see enough of it on the indie scene. Um, and it reminds me very much of a series that the distillery had done recently where um, they had looked at different um, sources of uh, wood. So they had, you know, oak from Missouri, oak from Kentucky. So each one was a bottling. And mm -hmm. this, this has me in mind of that. It's very fresh, lovely, um, mm. I was describing it as zippy bourbon, but then somebody else decided it was edgy. edgy. So now I'm, I'm having edgy added to our flavometer, because um, I really think, you know, that's that's a quality I want to look for in my whiskey. I need to know if it's an edgy whiskey, which is, of course, the source of all the jokes at the campfire that happened later on. So that's where that comes from. Um, so if those of you need an endorsement for our Glengarry nine-year-old uh, nine and you are looking for an edgy whiskey, this is the one for you. Yeah, edgy, zippy. Yeah, yeah. Would you say effervescent? No, not effervescent. No there is effervescent? definitely there is definitely some whiskies in my mind that I think are like effervescent, and it's not as far as that. It's just really alive. Yeah, wow. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember because I I've got a small sample of it somewhere on my desk or somewhere on my shelf, and 
if I remember correctly, when we tasted that, there was a particular tart quality, like this bright tartness to it, which I think you could call edgy or what was it, zippy? I, think I, I said zippy, zippy which yeah. is definitely, that's a hangover from my wine days um, where you get certain special white wines that can be quite zippy on the palate. Mm. Um, and I really feel like this Glengarry does that. Zippy is definitely a fair way of describing it, I think. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, think, uh, I'm all for I think it. This is our first bottling from the Glengarry distillery. 100%. First Glengarry, first. Paul John is just as about to share with us. Not our first Port Dundas, though. We did a 42-year-old no. for the U.S. For the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah, this is exciting, getting a, a new distillery on the list. Mm-hmm. Fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was our first in conversation with, and I was really pleased with that. Um, nobody hated them, I'm glad to report. I did tell them <laughs> that um, it's too late if they didn't like it. There's nothing I could do about it. Um, but yeah, no, they were all very kind and said lots of nice things. And so I think that went quite well. And then we had another in conversation with same same setup um, in the chapel um, a couple of hours later where I poured our Paul John four-year-old and our Dalyrain eight-year-old. And the Paul John, as you just mentioned, is the first time we have brought a Paul John in. But I guess that makes it our second Indian whiskey we've released, a single cast nation. Mm-hmm. That is correct. That is correct. Because it was an Amrat. Um, yeah, and that was an exciting challenge. That was like pretty much my first week of the job, was to start working out how to get stuff in from Goa. So yeah, that's taken... It's taken its sweet time, hasn't it? Um, <laughs> which, hey, COVID. Which... Which dovetails beautifully with our story about Amrut back in the day, which is that took its sweet time coming to fruition. Uh, so that's true. You know, we we know what it's like <laughs> making deals in India, but the whiskey, oh, lives, the whiskey's great. lives up to the struggles. Yeah, mm. I'm I'm really pleased with this. Um, I thought it was. Um, I think it was really interesting to put it in front of people. Obviously, Maltstock guys are. Um, they're experienced whiskey drinkers, so it's definitely not the first time they've come across a Paul John, but there aren't too many independently bottled Paul Johns, so um, mm-hmm. it was a, a nice opportunity, I think, for them to try our take on them, and I think that went down really well. Everybody seemed to really like it, so no complaints there. Yeah. Um, yeah. What kind of notes were you picking up? It was up? funny, because I thought it was a little bit cold when I poured it. It's one of these that when you warm it up in your hands, that kind of like lovely, spicy, exotic notes definitely come through. Yeah. Um, when we poured it, I think, you know, if you let it warm in your hands a little bit before you start really going to work with it. There is something really unique about that nose, um, especially when you put mm-hmm. it in a context of other Scotch whiskies, which everybody is so used to, uh, the kind of aromas and characteristics of Scotch, that when you put something that's made somewhere else in front of them, I think that you can really feel that difference in the nose, even if you can't necessarily mm. put your finger on it, and you want to say the mm-hmm. word smooth... Uh, but you, um, you know, there's something else there that kind of like lovely, warming, gentle spice. I really like it. It's yeah. it's kind of got a an almost rye like quality in that spice that it gives you in the palate, but not quite a rye either. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm really mm-hmm. pleased with it. It's delicious. Four years old, ex bourbon, just really yummy. An opportunity to put a Paul John in your cabinet, I think, is always a a good one. Yeah, I'm, nice. I- I'm excited. That a this will be in our um, ROW Rest of World third release, but we're gonna have one for the U.S. as well. Spoiler alert! And so, 
Yep. Spoiler alert. I just <laughs> wanted to put it out there because I know we'll have some American listeners saying, you know, regardless of what country you're in, you always say, why do they get to have the good stuff, right? So I just want to make sure that, that our American listeners know they will also be getting a Paul John. Uh, and they're well worth putting side by side. Yes, they why, are. Why would you yes, say that? Are. Why would you say, you know the rage that's going to induce in the info at email account? I mean, just wait till we do the mailbag episode and I have 50,000 emails of people complaining about Westland. I mean, really? <laughs> don't, don't be teasing these poor dear listeners. Um, that was our Paul John Uh, I was just going to ask knowing that it's a knowledgeable group at Maltstock any pushback on a a four year old age statement? No I don't think so Um, I think because there's usually a fairly good representation there of whiskies from non-Scotch nations Mm. I mean even Dutch whiskey itself is quite often released at a young age so the natives are aware of whiskey doesn't need to be 10 plus equals good um, so no, I didn't. I didn't have anybody, um, anybody questioning it. We discussed a little about the um, maturation and the kind of environment that Goa is providing in terms of like humidity and angels share and stuff like that. Nope, mm-hmm. no, I didn't have anybody raising an eyebrow being like, <gasps> "It's four years old. I'm not touching it." So Perfect. they're a good crew. They Perfect. know. They know. Yep. Um, yep. Okay, so I shall lead us into our final thing that I poured, which was the Dalian eight year old, which is just like a really delicious. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I still haven't found in my mind a way to describe it like an everyday sipper but I don't want that to sound like I'm encouraging you to drink every day because obviously hashtag drink responsibly um, but I just think it's it's a really lovely juicy um, this is what we're calling new wood which in itself is a term we can discuss a little bit um, the argument about first fill new wood whether that means virgin which is also a, a term which causes trouble. So, um, yeah, it allowed us to have a little bit of a discussion about these kind of um, hidden distilleries that are just mm. quietly working away up in the up in the hills. Not really, you know, there's no visitor centre, there's no big grand come to our heritage centre and look at our casks type thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not producing really delicious whiskies. Yeah, I, I've been so, I think I've, I've said it on the podcast, I've said it in other tastings, but I've been so pleasantly impressed by Dal Ewan this year. Like just visiting different ages of it, different cask samples, slightly different maturations on it. Just wonderful, really, really wonderful spirit. Mm-hmm. And as much as we've got more Dal Ewans coming, this is our first named Dal Yes. in single cast nation. Yeah. You know, <laughs> before... We just talked about this on a podcast <laughs> recently. Yeah. Before, before this eight-year-old that we bottled, and we've got a few coming to the U.S. as well, these, you know, eight, nine, and ten-year-old Dal Ewan's, my experience with Dal Ewan has always been the older stuff, the, the 20-something, the getting close mm-hmm. to 30-something, and my very first Daluin was a 28-year-old bottled by Master of Malt back in like 2008, 2009, something like that. And I remember saying, as we, as we started the company, oh, if we ever find a Daluin that good, uh, I'll just it, it, I'll be in heaven, right? I feel as if we've actually accomplished something. And so then, what was it? 2017, 2018? I think it was maybe 2018. We bottled our 28-year-old, which we misunderstood the paperwork on it. We could have put distilled at Daluane Distillery on there, 
but instead it just says undisclosed 28-year-old. But, you know, back then, again, that was my only experience with Dal Ewing, the, the 20-somethings. And so now here we are dipping a toe into these 8-, 9-, and 10-year-old casks of whiskey, and it's a totally different side of Dal Ewing, but mm-hmm. one I'm absolutely falling in love with. I, I agree with you. There is a hashtag pull the cork on a Friday, recycle the <laughs> bottle on a Monday, but drink responsibly thing going on here. But it's just that good. It's so yep. drinkable. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I really I really enjoyed pouring that. I'm, and I'm looking forward to having a bottle open and just kind of working my way through it because I think that's just going to be a really pleasant kind of take and share with friends type whiskey. So and we talked a little bit about... Whiskey is one of these, I think it's always great to be with conversation. It's a very sociable drink. Um, and that's, to me, the mm. like the perfect, you know, take it around with some friends, have it with some beers, you know, if you're at a fire pit and you have a cigar, that kind of, you know, like, just something that's yeah. like, just tickles the spot without it being one of these. It doesn't need deep analysis. It doesn't it remind um, demand your full attention for hours on end which there are definitely some whiskies out there that you can do that with but um yeah I, this is a very sociable little number so i'm, I'm pleased it's it's nice to have a, a range you know when we do the releases it's almost like we think about it a bit it's nice to have a, <laughs> like a selection of um drams that cover speak, speak for yourself yeah. <laughs> single castination getting away with it for 10 years yeah <laughs> so yeah those are the four we put at malt stock um and i i think they were pretty well received i i don't there was nobody who spat them out and ran away quickly or not that i saw anyway so i think you know i think we're good poured them into the nearest potted plant <laughs> yeah no. so what are the what are the other two that are bottled for row number three so our two remaining row three releases are um, an Ardmore 23 year old, which is Dicharicha peated, which is delicious. Um, and and cold, fi- coal fired stills. Coal fired. Yes, coal fired, direct fire stills. That's, that is, that's history. That's yeah. Ardmore history in a bottle. That's amazing to me. Yeah, really old fashioned. And I think this is good too. This is another one that I think is going to change as I go through the bottle. I've only had taken a couple of bits out to make into samples. I'm looking forward to letting it have a little bit more air because I think that smokiness is just going to unravel a little bit more in the bottle. Um, and then finally for our non-whiskey offering um, in ROW3, we have a 10-year-old Foursquare, which is, we think, a refill bourbon hogshead. So it's not like our first one, which was um, we had a Trinidadian rum in sherry that was a big fruity thing. Um Four square on, on its own anyway, I find incredibly fruity. So this is just really delicious. This is a definite throw the cork away. You don't need it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> if you need an endorsement. <laughs> Gosh, there's a lot of hag- ta- hashtag please drink responsibly this morning. But uh, this morning. This episode. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you've got to be enthusiastic about selling it. At this point, are we comfortable giving people a, a, a time frame in which to look out for these whiskeys? I'm going to say soon. 
Yeah. Okay. Because then nobody can shout at me for time frames. They're, they're pretty. <laughs> they are pretty much ready to go. So, yeah. um, samples will be going out in the next kind of week-ish to markets, and then hopefully our, our our order books will be really full. And then, then you're back to sending prayers and offerings to the logistics gods to make that happen around the world. I suspect mm. it'll arrive somewhat quicker in the UK, but you never know these days. Um, and then yeah, we're really at the mercy of container shipping and that kind of good stuff for everybody yeah. else so no i am not going to tell you you will definitely be able to pick these up on the 23rd of november or something i i'm just gonna say soon because it causes well, a lot less aggro i i i asked that question on purpose and it was depressed <laughs> because we just we needed a third person to remind people that <laughs> logistics is an absolute nightmare right now. And, and we can say, oh, it's going to be ready next week, but that could be in a month or two months yeah. or yeah. we just don't know. So, Yeah, and I can tell you having done my little 14-day trip around Europe, logistics of people is as enough of a nightmare. Mm. Uh, never mind loading pallets on and off containers and lorries and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes sorry guys still pandemic still brexit still life is difficult coming soon though right <laughs> well i'm glad that we got you onto the podcast after a summer of promises thanks mm -hmm. well i nearly mm -hmm. i tried really hard not to come on the podcast by like i say taking a very long way to Maltstock, but it appears you've caught me anyway <laughs> yeah, that you was, can't that escape was us crazy. no matter how hard you try yeah it, t it turns out you guys turn up on a massive screen at Maltstock screen at Maltstock uh, at the fire pit which was a lot of fun so um, it was really weird being the only person from the UK at an event that's never happened to me in my life so that was yeah pretty odd um, but kind of kind of cool I wanted to ask being the only person from the UK and, you know, just thinking back to your, your first time at Maltstock, what was the ratio of English speaking to non-English speaking at, at, the, at the festival? Or were people mostly speaking English still? Every, everybody speaks English because they're in a okay. civilized part of the world where everyone gets taught English. So everyone was very kind to me and spoke to me in English. I wasn't sat there being like, oh God, don't know what's happening. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there was, I don't think any problems and I don't think anybody had any problems understanding me that I know of. Um, so I know, I think, I, th I think that's, that's not a thing. I mean, obviously it was majority people from the Netherlands, but there were lots of Germans and Belgians there too. Obviously a smaller number because travel restrictions made things a little bit more difficult, but there's definitely... Mm a hardcore, dedicated group of malt stockers who were there. I was talking to some people who this was their 12th malt stock. So, yeah, they, you know, they didn't want to miss out, so they were, they had made the journey. Um, some of them have come in camper vans, and um, some people were camping, some people had, you know, uh, cycled. There's lots of people with bikes there. Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> it was really nice to see everybody. And very weird, very weird to be around, like, that many people all at once. I haven't, <laughs> you know, I haven't left my house really for 18 months so that was particularly odd to be um surrounded by people talking drinking whiskey yeah. like the before times was it was it weird at first and then you fell back into what being a, a human was like or did it just feel weird the whole time it was kind of weird but i had spent the week in sweden 
before where they're not wearing masks, which meant I had spent the whole week kind of like hanging onto my my mask and my sanitizer being like, but I have to have these. So yeah, I, <laughs> um, I, I kind of eased myself into malt stock, I guess, by doing that. Um, I was in Finland where it's very similar to Scotland. Everybody's wearing masks and distancing. Um, people in Sweden are distancing-ish, I'm going to say. There are signs up, but I'm not, not sure how much distancing there is. But yeah, um, once you arrive in the Netherlands, it's it's kind of somewhere between the UK and Sweden. They're not quite as relaxed. Um, everyone's still wearing masks on transport, obviously, um, and on the planes. Um, but not so much in buildings like we are doing here. We, mm. We're still wearing them when you go into a pub and stuff, whereas that, that wasn't really happening. Um, but yeah, it was just super weird. I mean, obviously the guys at Maltstock had taken great efforts to make sure that they were protected. You know, they were very vigilantly checking everybody's passes to make sure that, you know, you had approval to be at the event because it was a, a private event. So... Um, yeah, they've taken lots of precautions in doing so, but I felt perfectly safe. Um, I got my <laughs> one of many tests back yesterday, and I am negative, so it's all good. I, I have survived. I have not picked up any. <sighs> yeah, that's that in itself is a whole trauma for another day. Um, yeah, and I, I, so going back to what you said, yeah, it was it was kind of weird. It gave me hope that we are moving towards this, but I am well aware that there's a lot of moving parts. Um, before we can declare everything back fully open and ready for whiskey fun. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, we will give thanks to our boots on the ground roving reporter around Europe. <laughs> thanks for the updates. Thanks. I want yeah. to say one final very big thank you to the Maltstock crew who looked after um, our whiskies ahead of me arriving, but also really went above and beyond to make me feel welcome and wanted at a festival which was kind of a little bit uncertain but was certainly full of joy and it was everybody made me so welcome and were very kind to me so a big thank you for everything they did that definitely needs to be said yep cheers to that cheers to that well said Bringing Jess onto the podcast to talk about rest of the world release number three was brilliant, but I can I can already hear our American listeners saying, that's great and all, and I'll try to buy from this UK shop or that UK shop and, and hope I can get it to my doors, but what's your next retail release for the US look like? And, and to that, I say, dear listeners... We will be talking about retail release number eight in our next One Nation Under Whiskey episode. We're going to bring on our wonderful, beloved, dear Elijah A. to talk about retail release number eight. He'll have some news to share on some private casks that he's been working on, and, and maybe he can talk about the program a bit further during that news segment as well. So fear not, American listeners. Uh, or those living outside of the U.S. who can somehow get their hands on some of our American releases, right? We, we will be sharing that news in two weeks' time. Indeed. With the news segment firmly behind us, uh, normally we'd go into emails here. And, and while we have a couple of emails, they're, they'd require a long conversation and and. I want to save those for another time. Rather, what I'd like to focus on is, is a request Ooh. from us 
to the listener. Oh. Yes. Ah. <laughs> I was listening. Sorry. I was listening to a podcast this morning, and and at the at the end of it, you know, during you know after my morning run, I should say, and towards the end of their podcast, they said, you know, please go to Apple Podcasts, and and you know give us a five star review or review our podcast because it helps others find their podcast. And and I'd realized that, you know, we always put out the request, you know, go to Apple Podcasts, like like it, subscribe it, give us a rating, say some nice things, blah, blah, blah. And that's simply because we want people to like and subscribe our podcast and say nice things. I don't know if it fully sunk in that the more people that like our podcast and give us a rating, a good rating on it, it actually affects the Apple algorithm to help others find the podcast. And so if you, dear listener, have been enjoying this podcast, whether you've just been listening for the past month or you've been in this for for almost five going on six years, uh, then, then we ask that you go to Apple Podcasts. Go ahead. Please give us a, a five-star review. That'd be wonderful. Four is acceptable. Three and under, please reach out to us. Uh, personally, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. But but we could really use those likes. We could really use the ratings because it will help others find us. So a simple request. It should take less sure. than a minute of your time. And, and we would love it, love it, love it if you could do that. Yeah, I was going to throw in at this point, as you mentioned, emails that would require a longer response when and we mentioned him in the last episode of One Nation Under Whiskey, Tim Mushaw wrote in with the, the link to the blog, The Right Spirit. And we spent an entire episode of Extra Extra discussing that article. An entire the, extended episode, because there's <laughs> normally 30, 35 minutes. I think we were at 44 minutes with that one. <laughs> yeah, it, was a, it was a ton of fun. An article that discussed the word smooth and, and why... As the argument went, snobs, whiskey snobs, get upset when when consumers or punters or whiskey fans or whiskey tasters use that word. It really gave us something to get our teeth into. Mm. I think we had a very productive back and forth. And and as we said on, on the episode of Extra Extra, thanks to Tim for sending that in. But just to reiterate here... There was an email that came into questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com, no E on whiskey, and it turned into an extra extra. There was just a fun, long exposition of the word smooth. Someone ate a dictionary with that word exposition. I was, I was born with a silver dictionary in my mouth. A silver what? Uh, you heard me. Okay. Did I stutter? <laughs> Before we get out of here, I just want to remind people how to get in touch with us, whether they have a question or they uh, want to give us a an article for Extra Extra, it's all about whiskey, whatever it is, you can reach out to us, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. If you want to tweet at us, though, I am happy to say there are not a lot of people who tweet at us, which is really nice. But if you feel like you want to do that, we are at One Nation Whiskey. You can always send us Instagram messages at One Nation Under Whiskey, 
And then you can find us on the Facebooks, which is where our, our, our listener Ian Bruce found us uh, some time ago. And he's been messaging us every now and again, letting us know how he's been catching up on, on older episodes. Um, you can just go to facebook.com. Go to your search bar, look for One Nation Under Whiskey. And of course, of course, of course, as always, we never spell whiskey with the E when it comes to anything we do. So questions at One Nation Under Whiskey without the E. Before we get out of here, oh, Jesus. I want to revisit. But I just said something. before we get out of here. Now you're yeah, saying before we get out of here. And, and here's the joy of it. We're both correct. <laughs> it's still before we get out of here. All right. right? So, so what do you have so, before we get out of here? I ran a whiskey tasting, a Zoom whiskey tasting the other evening, mm. and and I poured some some real fun things, right? And so everybody knows, here's what we're returning to, and that top five recommendations episode, where oh. each of us brought a top five list. Yeah. My tasting started with Compass Box Glasgow Blend, mm-hmm. which is on my top five list. And for the first time ever, I went into Craigellachie 13. <sighs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. Which, and I, and I couldn't quite remember, was Craigellachie 13 on your top five list or it was a, a, a commendable uh, offering? <laughs> I wish the listener <sighs> could see your face. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm near I'm near positive that it is on my top five list because I always have okay. a bottle on hand. It it's one of those ones when I get down to a quarter bottle I get another. So let's I, I'm right. gonna say it's the top five. Yep. Right. And so so that was number two. And so I had each of our top five lists represented mm. in the first two pours. I then went into the Aaron Sautern cask finish. This was an offering from a decade ago. Um, James McTaggart's name is nowhere on the front or back oh, label. Oh, so that's... Are you... So I want you to continue with your list, but I'm very curious to know how that yeah. one went because in my mind, there's a difference between James McTaggart Sautern finish <laughs> and non-James McTaggart. So I turn finish. So continue, and then we can talk. So within the tasting, it was very well received. Okay. In speaking with our good friend, Andrew Miller, the champagne of people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he had an Oregon release of an Aaron Sautern finish, and he put them side by side. And only quietly to me on a on, on another day's conversation did he say he preferred the Oregon bottling to the one that that I had. Yeah. And I said to him, that makes perfect sense for uh-huh. the exact reason to which you allude. What 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 I loved what I loved about this, uh, other than other than the answer, so I feel good about that. <laughs> <laughs> is is that you said he said quietly to me, which by extension you've relayed this story to around forty thousand people who visit us monthly. So, so there you go. So, just so you know, a- Andrew Miller, the the champagne of people, uh, your story is everywhere. But what I enjoyed was he wasn't in the tasting yeah. saying, 
oh, you know what's better than this? <laughs> this one over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've really missed a mark here. Like, I, I like the fact that it was just quietly to the side on a different day. That, that's the part I appreciated. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I was saying to him, you know, I think there's a difference between Aaron, when they started not having the best wood policy, then bringing in a new MD and a new distillery manager mm-hmm. and overhauling their wood maturation, something we've discussed with, with multiple industry people on, mm-hmm. the, on the podcast. Um, I, I think there's a difference between that and spirit that went into good wood and then was finished in Sauterne. Like yeah. It, uh, yep. it, it is better. Yep. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a, an obvious fact. So, so that was good. And then, and then we closed out with the, the Roma, Single Cast Nation, Collaboration, Ardmore 10, Retail oh, lovely. Release. lovely, 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 yeah. And the Port Escague 8-year-old. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I thought you'd like that. Yeah, and it was so, so what did people think about our Ardmore, and what did they think about the Port Escague? The, the Ardmore wins watches everywhere it goes. People <laughs> just... Love it. And, and and the reason that I finish in a five-bottle tasting, I finish with that Highland Peat leading into Isla Peat, mm-hmm. is to overcome the number of people who say, oh, I don't like peat, right? And yes. I'm not going to repeat it. We've said it many, many, many times across many, many, many episodes. But Highland Peat really captures the attention of people who have said they don't like peat, mm. can show them a very different side of peat. And then... When you go into the Port of Skeg, the Port of Skeg, I think, shows them a different side of peat. Great. Where, yeah. you know, c- coming from a, a northeast Isla coast uh, distillery around the corner from the port of Port of Skeg, um, it's bright, <laughs> it's fresh, it's clean, it's somewhat sophisticated, even at eight years old. Yeah. And they're used to Isla peat being dirty gym socks and dank. And burning earth, and I and I love being able to show these these different sides of peat. So, but but what was interesting was as I was sitting there doing the pouring, I, I thought to myself first, and then I said it to the group. Here we are sitting in the middle of September, and I feel like I've put together a fall pouring for you all. Mm-hmm. The Glasgow blend into the Craigellachie thirteen into the Aaron Sutern into the Ardmore for Roma. Into the port escape. These are all autumnal pours. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was just so easy. And I, I sat yeah. on my deck at, you know, at 5.30 to start this tasting. The sun was coming down. It was you know, low 80s degrees. It was, it was just a really easy, fun tasting. But I really wanted to pivot back because the reason that I wanted to share the Craig Elliki 13 is because of your recommendation from the top five episode that we did. And and it was, it was great. The other thing to double back on, and I, I know I haven't covered this in the podcast because I only opened it with you last week, mm-hmm. was your, and I know this was a, a recommendation, this wasn't on a list, but a recommendation was the Glen Murray 18. Ah, yes. Holy shit, brother. That was... I'm drinking some of that it, tonight. It, May do it about it. It's it's your point about Glen Murray was such a good one. Is that a you absolutely love Glen Murray, but you've always lived within 
the distillery exclusives, the single casks, the cast strengths, the special editions that are cast strength, and etc. And the standard releases you've never really have never really hit your palate. Quite often it's 40%, it's chill filtered, so on and so forth. And then this one at the 18-year-old at 47.2% alcohol. What a number. Right? Great number. <laughs> but to me, it it was to me when I first tasted that bottle, it was that game changer to the distillery that is very similar to when you said to me, Have you tried the new Bunahaban 12 at 46.3? <laughs> Where all of the a decade ago. right a decade ago, but all of a sudden the dis, all of a sudden the distillery is allowed to show you. I wouldn't say no holds barred because it is diluted down to that ABV, but aside from that, it's, it's showing you all of the great things that can come from that distillery. Yeah, don't yeah, chill filter was... it right, and 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 you got a bit of magic on your hands. Yeah, and I, I think I paid seventy or seventy five dollars for an. 18-year-old at 47.2. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, run, don't walk, right? That's, you need <laughs> this bottle. Week. Yeah, yep. <laughs> so, so kudos to you. I appreciated you putting the, the Craig Ellicke 13 and the, the Glen Murray 18 in front of me. I followed through. I picked up both of them, and neither one let me down to the extent that I'm now recommending Craig Ellicke 13 and, and Glen Murray 18 to people. Beauty. Absolute beauty. Oh. I'm thankful for that. Cheers. Thank you for sharing. I'd like to hear that before before we got out of here. But now that we have reached the getting out of here portion, I'm going to hang up the mic. Maybe I'll drop the mic. I'm going to go pour some Glen Murray 18. Beautiful. And you know what? I think I'll pour a little Compass Box Glasgow's Blend. (laughs) Is it Glasgow's Blend or Glasgow Blend? Because I know it's Artist's Blend. I thought it was Glasgow blend. Hmm. We'll never know. We'll never know. Just simply never know. How could we ever know, Jason? We'll simply never know. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) 